Hello and welcome to the Sound Ideas Podcast, brought to you by Frank Wolf and myself, Adam Hugavine. Today we speak with Kevin Valley. Kevin is a mentor, adventurer, keynote speaker, writer, and architect. He's an extremely accomplished individual, and it's our pleasure to speak with him. Welcome to the Sound Ideas Podcast. Uh, my name is Frank Wolf, and I'm here with my, my co-host, Adam Hukavine. Hello, Frank. And tonight we are privileged to have a very good friend of mine, Kevin Vallely, um, famous explorer, architect, um, adventurer, man about town, really a renaissance man. And uh, we are in his home studio here where all the magic happens um, this dark evening in November. So, Kevin, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me. And, uh, and Kevin, uh, how long have we known each other for? How long have we known uh, each other? Uh, geez, I'd say that goes back to maybe 1996, 19, maybe. Could be. And, and can you describe the context of you first meeting me? <laughs> well, I, I... Before you even knew me, like the first meeting meeting of me, it was, it was, I, was, was, I, was uh, I was kind of in a bit of a ragged state, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, you, you were. And uh, I'd heard about you, actually. Uh, a friend, a mutual friend of ours, Peter, Peter Welsh, had described this individual to me who would go to uh, duathlon, these off-road duathlon races. And he told me about this guy over and over again. And he said, you know, and, and when it came to the biking section, he couldn't really ride well. So he just grabbed the bike and he'd run with the bike and he'd win these things. That was in mountain biking, actually. Yeah, yeah mountain biking. <laughs> the irony now, you've become such a good rider. But nonetheless, uh, back then, many, many moons ago, 25%, how many years is that now? Uh, uh, six, 16, mm. 25 years. Amazing, if you think about it. Well, Peter was telling me about this guy. And um, I then forgot about this guy. And then I did uh, the Nienacker, uh, the North Shore uh, Nienacker race. It's a 50-kilometer race across uh, uh, Vancouver's North Shore. A lot of people may have heard of it. And um, it was my inaugural year, and I was pretty good at running up hills. I was quite fast. Uh, I At the time, I, happened, I had the grouse grind record, and I could run up the hill really <laughs> quickly. <laughs> What was that sound? Sorry. That's... Adam farted. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, for the record, it was not. But um, Well, anyway, I, I will... There's a lot of a, beans on the pizza we just a, had. A quick moment <laughs> to thank Kevin and uh, for bringing us into your home and your home studio and your office. And just to set a bit of a picture, um, he's, he's lucky because he has a beautiful, big office with tons of windows that front out on, onto the forest here in the North Shore and North Vancouver. And uh, I was commenting early on how lucky I was to have a decent space during COVID to work from home and, and also having a job um, and being a creative and a professional that also uh, does a lot of hosting, keynote speeches. Um, this space is incredibly important and it's it's cool. I, I, I can't wait to maybe one day see it in the day because right now it's <clears throat> getting to uh, mid-November and it's dark out. It's dark, boy. Uh, the thing is that it can get lonely up here. I, I love it. I'm looking out into a wall of green. But I always joke that uh, pre-COVID, when everyone else had their co colleagues and cohorts at work, I would have, there's an orange cat and there's a couple of squirrels that run across and I kind of waved to, you know, good morning, fellow squirrel. And that was it. There was no one. Uh, so I, I, you kind of crave human contact at some point. I don't get a lot of it here. 
Uh, but I do love my little green bubble and it's been perfect in COVID. Nothing's changed for me. <laughs> I'm still in this office. Works out just great. Ever had three in the studio before like this? Uh, I've had clients a number of times in no. the studio, but not quite like this. But uh, this feels right. And it's a good size for it, right? It feels yeah. good. Anyways, Kevin, back to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Me. <laughs> no, no. Thanks, Adam. But that was very good story. <laughs> was um, uh, But... It's During the Nienacker running race, I was charging and I had I, I had got out into the lead because I was fast up the grouse grind. And uh, and then suddenly coming down the descent into into Cyprus, there's this guy who comes running past me down the gravel road. And he's just like flying. And I remember thinking to myself, there is no bloody way that guy's going to be able to keep up that pace. Like shaking my head. But he did kind of keep up that pace, and uh, I never saw him again. And I remember going along, going pretty fast, and I was in second place and started to deteriorate pretty badly at one point. And I remember meeting Peter, our mutual friend, on the trail mm-hmm. and over at Grouse. And all he was saying is, the guy, that guy in front, that's the guy, that's the guy in the duathlons who runs it. I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm never going to catch this guy. Well, to end the story we uh, about... Uh, two kilometers from the end of uh, the Nienacker, it's it gets grueling and there's lots of stairs. And Frank, at that point, being an elite runner uh, who ran at Michigan, uh, was ill-prepared for the length of that uh, uh, duration. And it had was 35 the- degrees and I didn't think I had to drink water. Exactly, yeah. so you were drinking. So he's cramped. And he cramped so badly, in fact, that when I caught him, he was crawling literally on hands and knees up one of the flights of stairs. <laughs> I remember going by... Looking good, buddy. Uh, you're almost there. As I went by, thinking, "Oh my God, he's never going to make it," and he crossed the line. And uh, not long after that, we became uh, good friends uh, through skiing. And next thing you know, the following year, we trained for the Nienacker, where he kicked my butt. Uh, I came in second, but nonetheless, uh, we became fast friends and realized Kevin that... came in second. I won, by the way, everyone. Yes, yes, Kevin second. Yes, yes. <laughs> Did you win? I was crawling uh, up the stairs. The next year, year, you finished. Yes, he did finish that first year. Fifteen minutes clear of Kevin the next year, actually. But the first (laughs) year you lost. I remember, just for the record. Yeah, I know. It's it's a one-all. We tied. We're always tied. Actually, he lost. He lost that first year. (laughs) (laughs) Just clarify that. Well, when you said badly, yeah, (laughs) I was kind of assuming you you were in in like a bit of a a state at a pub or something. So I'm glad it started with athletics and not something a little less harrowing. Um, but the connection here for, for you two, obviously, you have athletics and yep. outdoor adventure. Yep. Um, and you guys are both very well accomplished outdoor adventurers and athletes. And then, of course, I would call you both creative people because I know you write and you've published, obviously, a couple books at least, if not more, that I can see beside us. And then, of course, Frank, you've also been published and you continue to write. And then where that splinters there is, is you know, Frank, you've had kind of the cornerstone of, of your, your career in the outdoor industry. And then, of course... Um, you know, you have been an architect. Um, Is an architect. A people leader or a guider of, I don't know, how, what, what's your name? Uh, leadership game? training, yeah, uh, leadership maybe. development. Yeah. Uh, Tripped over that one. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, doing expeditions, um, you know, probably sometimes financed and sometimes just on your own. So it's it's pretty awesome. And, and in your bio that I read quickly, I didn't have a ton of time to research or read your books, but... It, it seemed like the life balance was a huge thread and it's not most professionals don't have life balance and not able to do three things. And then those three categories I think are look like pillars. 
Uh, yeah, it's critical, I think. And I, I think that's where Frank and I relate is that we know what's important and what's not, frankly. And uh, on any uh, expeditions we've done together or just kind of hanging out as, as friends is actually having a worldview that's similar and uh, uh, knowing what's a priority and what's not. And both of us, we don't strive to make a ton of money. That's not a huge important thing uh, ever. It's more life experience, which is more important. Uh, good friends are important. Uh, uh, great experiences are important. And pushing yourself uh, is important physically, mentally. Uh, challenged uh, really on major expeditions, which are essentially like a reboot, you know, to everything you do in life. You come back from a major trip, uh, you see everything a little bit differently. And I, th- I know we connect on that level. Uh, certainly on a trip, it's interesting because I've often been asked, how do you, you know, after a teammate you've seen for 40 days on a journey, uh, do you just never want to see them again? And I, you know, after a number of trips with Frank, we'll end up going for, you know, pints of beer like the day after because that's just the way it is. Uh, so it's it either brings people together or it tears them apart. But uh, certainly if you're of like mind. So certainly for Frank and I, um, it's done that. Uh, just uh, created a really strong bond. And Kevin, that's just a big bit of a, a, a left turn, but also we kind of brushed on it, but you're... You've been doing architecture for for years, since yeah. late '80s, basically McGill University. You graduated, I believe, top of the class at the time in out of McGill in, in architecture, and actually the whole uh, graduating class itself yeah. at the time. And then um, just recently, now after all those years, you just won the Arthur Erickson Award for emerging. <laughs> Architect. So you just emerged now. I did. Yeah, from a forty-year architecture 50, yeah. career. <laughs> you emerge uh, in your fifties. Go figure. Well, congratulations. Well, anyways, thank, yes. Thank you. Uh, and no, it was a huge honor, actually, to be honest with you, because I'm going up against the Arthur Erickson Memorial Award for an emerging architect with Western Living. A lot of people apply for it, and uh, it's 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 a it's a big honor, frankly. And uh, there's a lot of really good people, and it tends to be. It's not really just a person. It's it's firms, and uh, I'm me you we're sitting in my office right here there's only me i don't work with anyone else i do all everything start to finish and most of the companies that i'm going against in and any of these awards you know there's multiple people involved so they're producing a lot more i don't produce a ton because i'm doing other things i happen to be doing adventures i might be writing a book i might be you know i'm doing leadership training work i just do a kind of everything so it's never a huge priority it's just something i'm impassioned about uh, but architecture has been something that you know since day one i've done it i've uh, you know i always wanted to be an architect since i was a uh, a kid and uh, interestingly enough i remember uh, to this day at daniel o'connell grade school uh this uh, girl and i think i was in grade two or three asked me uh what do you want to be when you're grown up uh, and I remember, I still remember, I still remember the spot going, one of two things, I want to be an architect or a stuntman. <laughs> I remember thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm going, you know, reflecting on it, being a, a, a sort of an explorer adventure guy, maybe there's a little bit of that stunt person in there still, but uh, the architect came to reality. So it's interesting, even as a little guy, I kind of had a sense of where my whole personality went. <laughs> That's interesting. I remember, you know, once upon a time, I think when I was young, growing up, the you know the question, oh, what do you want to do when you grow up? 
I never figured that out at a young age, but I remember being interested in architecture for some reason. And that was probably the best kind of sniff that never was because it was always like, Oh, I don't know when you're seven, it's like, maybe I'll be a spaceman or a fire person or a policeman. Um, but I admire the, the creativity and the beauty in design. And of course I work for, uh, an outdoor company that, that is basically a design company. You know, we make beautiful apparel and distribute it worldwide. Um, and I've, worked in the industry for well almost 20 years now selling distributing and then being part of the the network that distributes gives feedback and really just kind of examines and solves solutions um and it's it's just incredible and i think that i was joking earlier that architecture in north america we have some phenomenal architecture but you know the suburbs uh, have really ruined that because it's cookie cutter and it's it's production and that's fair because everyone needs a home and in north america we like our our detached homes and they need to go up quickly um what would you be your comment on that like in being a worldly uh, citizen that's traveled a lot um you know where do you like to travel where what inspires you in terms of architecture where would you go well, I mean, everywhere, uh, frankly, something that's different is inspiring. I find uh, the suburban existence, which I somewhat live in myself, is it's not real. It's based on the car, you know, like that's how you, you have to get to it. You need a car to get to it. And uh, the car, you know, you have the big driveway and you have the garage in front and you park. And it's suburbia has been caused by vehicular transport. And if you if you go to cities if you go to rome for example and you're, you're walking through rome and you're these tiny little alleyways and you realize places and cities that are designed for human beings you get in paris as well and you know of course you have the houseman grid that comes over top of paris which is the juxtaposition of the two is fascinating as well meaning the massive boulevards like the champs Elysees, but then you can drift off the champs Elysees and there, you get into a network of an organic little walkways and streets which is the human side of paris and that's where the magic lies is that that suburbia is just not natural it's kind of geared towards vehicles and uh and it's an unfortunate reality so it's hard to even make a comment on it i mean you have nicer homes in in suburbia and less nice homes in suburbia but uh fundamentally there's a problem with it so i don't that's where i don't have an issue with densification and that's where i don't mind like you know east van has a vibe yes of course there's lots of cars and stuff but it's a little more intense right and it's a little less friendly for cars to find a parking spot than it is in suburbia and that's what i'm kind of drawn to as a montrealer that's where i grew yeah. up uh, yeah i live in east van and, and it's a walkable space where i live in particular and and most spots in East Van, you can walk to your corner shop at the very least. And, and a lot of the places you can get to a grocery or you yep. can definitely bike to do almost anything you need to do. And um, yeah, there is more grit. And there's also a lot of diversity because you do have low rise. You have some what I would call mid rise going up and, and probably that have been there for 20 or 30 years. And then you have this uh, backfill with laneway homes, mm -hmm. a lot of fresh builds in my neighborhood as well. And you get that eclectic you know, um, grouping of people now because you have people that have been there forever. You have people that have freshly built and people that have a lot of money now. So you're seeing, you know, the, the Range Rovers and the BMWs parked beside the, the beaters, if you will. It's great and, though. And, and you have this actual nice renaissance with architecture because if you walk down my street, every 
fifth or seventh house will be brand new. And the, you know, the old houses weren't t- taken care of and they were small in terms of what you got out of them in terms of you know rooms, etc. So, you know, a lot of those have been rebuilt. Uh, and then you have the Vancouver specials and I have a book called Vancouver special. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but if not, I'll pass it on because it's about the history of East Vancouver. I didn't realize that's yours. I, yes, I do. I'm it's not mine. Oh, I oh, own oh, a copy. He didn't write the book. Yeah, yeah. My, well, yeah. I know. I, I, I'm very aware of it. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, but anyway, point being, it, it's eclectic now. And it's nice because there is a renewal. And I think gentrification, it can be a bad word um, for obvious reasons. But. It's it's an interesting time for East Vancouver because there is a mix and you're getting some, you know, high end boutique restaurants, boutique expensive retail, but you still have that feeling of East Vancouver. So there's the hippie vibe, you know, various cultural demographics and there's just an old school, like the old school Asian element I really love. Like really like most of my neighbors are Asian, it's their neighborhood and they've been in Vancouver, you know, ten times longer than I have been yeah. and more longer than most of us. So it's 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 cool. Um, but you're right. But effectively, it, it is a suburban neighborhood or was, you know, and it would have been probably how it was being kicked up between the 1920s and 1950s. And then there was clearly a boom in the, the 80s with the Vancouver specials. But I find Vancouver specials are actually very practical mm-hmm. houses. I mean, my sister lived in one for a long time and she had the top half and it was just a lot of square footage and simple but functional. Yep. No, no, for sure. And you, Kevin, uh, you're saying like uh, things are getting so busy that cars can't get around in places like East Vancouver. But now that's kind of creating, you know, bike lanes and yeah. walkable spaces and, and all that sort of thing. And that it's kind of becoming almost like what Rome and Paris were originally before the car was there, right? I mean, they built these cities with small walkways because there were no cars to accommodate. Yep. People were there walking and getting around by horseback or whatever. And so they're more livable. But then if you build, build a city now, based, it's almost like we're going in reverse. We're going from a car-focused one to kind of seeing that it's better to have kind of more human kind of movement totally. in, in areas. Right? And, so, and my experience, yeah. you know, in geography and in just from what I picked up, is there was that, that boom to go to the suburbs to get out of the city. And now it's the retro, um, you know, pre-COVID. COVID kind of changed the game pretty quickly, but people want to be within the urban core they want to walk they want to ride bikes and they're realizing that they want to escape you know spending one to four hours in a car which for me sounds like a nightmare i've never been in a position where i have to regularly commute for more than 20 or 30 minutes um and i mean that's a great thing now we're all a lot of us are working from home as well and what was your commute during covid just roll out of bed (laughs) go to the coffee maker you know that's kevin's commute every day i always say my commute there is between a minute and 15 45 (laughs) seconds to a minute and 15 depending on how full my coffee cup is and it really is wonderful Um, however there's something nice about stepping out and i find i again in this little bubble in my office here and it's great for creativity but for creativity as well it would be nice to have because i'm an architect designing by myself be really nice to be able to toss ideas past people and 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 sort of have that you know conversation which i i don't have and i have to be incredibly self-critical but sometimes you need someone to just kick you in the butt and say Mm. well no that sucks you know (laughs) like it doesn't work and it's like well yeah i guess you're right or you say screw off and then you think about it and go yeah maybe they're right and maybe i should change but you need that occasionally uh artistically right yeah and i mean I work with teams and I work with people because I work in sales Um, and I literally work with the app teams, but my team of, you know, five to 10 in my core group, uh, 
we're incredibly close and and we've kind of filled a bit of the gap with kind of impromptu chats for functions like oh i have a question i need to talk to my boss i need to talk to a colleague looking for advice and then it's like okay you know we spend eight plus hours at our desk every day and i will just try to have a water cooler moment you know with my friends i'll just say hey what's up how are you doing um just checking in and we have good leadership that encourages us to check in not just for function um and that's in a way brought our team closer together because people used to travel and people used to work from home but before the tech and the the culture had evolved we wouldn't bug each other if we weren't in the office you know and a good example is, is my boss um i wouldn't really call him or message him email for sure like if he was not in the office so even if he was working or if he was traveling you know i would just like oh we'll catch him next time whereas now um, you know, the pace of work moves really quickly. And if you have an idea or you need to bounce something off of, like you said, if you were at the water cooler or had a team or someone, you could bounce that really quickly and kind of maybe move on. But that isolation for people that don't work with people or, uh, you know, it must be a bit, a total different vibe. And then, and with your other work, do you, do you work with team? Well, you work with people all the time. I do. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, in leadership training work, I work for a company called the AIP group, which connects to my adventuring world and it's called, uh, you know, adventures, inspiring performance. So it's using the ad- adventure metaphor, uh, using that wild wisdom garnered in the adventure world and bringing it back to the boardroom. And it, the connection is palpable. Like it's, you know, it's there. And we all know that, if you can successfully be part of and lead a team in one of the most hostile, ever-changing environments on the planet, where if you make a mistake, something goes wrong, the lessons you learn in that environment uh, about whatever it has to be, accountability, honesty, uh, trust, uh, you know, having an opportunity mindset, you, you, resilience, everything that you talk about in the business world is directly related to that and um, and being able to bring it back and and speak to people through the lens of adventure is often a really inspiring one because suddenly they they kind of see it a little bit differently and then you can pause them and say okay so now how about your business and they've been sort of stepping out of their normal way of seeing something through a discussion or through a facilitation or through conversations and then having them reflect on it. It's a very powerful connection. So that is my my day-to-day, uh, very much a, a gig that I do a lot of uh, and really enjoy. So for that one, Kevin, just, just to be clear, so if I was, say, like a programmer at Microsoft, yeah. and I'm coming into an AIP weekend, could you walk me through what do you do exactly do? What does that mean? Well, it's like, what, are you, what are you giving just like someone who's coming in or, or like maybe an executive from a company and, and so they're they're coming in on Saturday morning and what's AIP? Well, it wouldn't be, say, pre-COVID. Let's yeah. say pre-COVID. Yeah, pre-COVID. Let's go pre-COVID. pre-COVID. Let's go pre-COVID. Okay, yeah, pre-COVID. It would be yeah. an event. Yeah. And it typically would, uh, I mean, it could be a programmer. It would be quite a senior programmer right. with a big team below them. Uh, it tends to be quite senior leaders. Right. And uh, a group of, could be from, you know, as small as 15 if it's C-suite, like if it's CEOs, it's like it's the top of the business. Like uh, I'm Bill Gates. Here I am. Yeah. yeah. Well, not quite. But okay. yes, we yeah. with some uh, businesses, which I won't mention the names, where it's um, you have the CEO and you have the CHRO and you have the CFO and the CMO and all the all the you know the the this is the C-suite. These are the people that run and they have thousands of people below them. So in in those circumstances, it's it's an intimidating group. Uh, we're, we're, without fail, you'll have uh, pre 
you know, uh, getting together, you're going to be meeting with uh, an HR person or a, a, someone who's in sort of the leader of uh, their leadership and training. And they have a direction they want to take a team. Maybe this team is struggling around, a, you know, strategic direction or they've had a shakeup and there's a new leader and they have to align behind someone or they're all over the place. They can't communicate or whatever. They come with an issue. And then you say, OK, well, we can solve that. Maybe we should do this, this and this. And then you'll deliver uh, over the course of a day or maybe two days, you'll deliver very succinct uh, experiences, development experiences, we call them, but they're training sessions. Like maybe it's around resilience. Like how do you be more resilient? Here's a 90 minute session and they, they come away with takeaways on how they can actually be more resilient. Then there's also opportunities for them to bring in their business, their own business. So maybe someone from, if it was a Microsoft or whoever, uh, would have someone, a leader, come in and speak for 45 minutes about their specific stuff. Then you'd come in again. You'd be kind of emceeing this. Uh, and then what we use is we use um, these adventure uh, immersive learning simulations. So we've filmed these expeditions over the years, and we have many, many of them. And we uh, they really happened real life scenarios and one of the most popular one is called reach for the summit so you're taking them into the field we are you said well i guess virtually virtually not literally okay so you're not taking them into the field. not physically but virtually so they're they suddenly in a room yeah imagine you have a room of okay so it's a virtual exercise where you're 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 visioning the, the this as an analogy yeah and they're watching videos and then they have to make a decision it's like a choose your own adventure type you give them a two or three paths to, to go along or whatever and they decide well yeah it's like this just happened what would you do mm-hmm. and it's like oh okay so you leave it open-ended well, and yeah. no, but then they make a decision and then it does an outcome and that outcome really happened. And, uh, and then in turn, uh, the next thing that happens, uh, then they have another decision to make. And based upon that, in turn, they maybe have another decision to make. But other teams have gone another way and other things are mm. happening for them. So it's branching out and everyone's seeing everyone's other outcomes. And it's fascinating because we pause the teams before they head out to uh, reflect on um, how they make a decision, their decision-making model, their guiding principles, their goals, uh, and their definition of success. So these are core elements as a team. And that's what we find that professional teams take away the most in the end. Like they have this fun simulation. They actually learn a lot of things about how their teammates react under certain situations and how they come in line and make decisions. But some of the stuff, for example, I'll give you an example of one which is really poignant to a business is uh, one of the most popular simulations is an attempt on climbing Mount Cook. And we have all the teams create their guiding principles and their definition of success. And and where is Mount Cook? In New Zealand. Zealand. It's the crown jewel of the New Zealand uh, Alps. Uh, Very technical peak and uh, just massive thing. And it's, uh, it's technical and hard to get. And it took our team six times to summit it at uh, six times, six attempts to summit it once. So everything happened, all the outcomes, like, you know, avalanches happened and people fell in crevasses and you name it, everything has happened. But on this particular situation, invariably, everyone, their guiding principle is safety. Invariably, that's one of the top ones, safety, everyone gets out of here alive, no matter what, that's number one. Then they're confronted with this decision that they have to make that really happened about a, a rogue team that had been a little bit kind of aggressive and, and pushed forward when they shouldn't into a storm and went up this uh, northeast ridge of uh, Mount Tasman. And uh, the storm came in. It was a massive storm hit. And they were in the base camp hut. And there was an actual guide in the hut. 
And by morning, this team hadn't come back and they were pretty sure they were dead. Mm. They weren't sure, but they were pretty sure. And they said, we need a team. We need to go out and rescue these guys. If they're alive, we need to rescue them because this storm is not abating and we need a team to come together. And uh, so are you going to join us or not? (laughs) Over to you. You have five minutes to make that decision. So suddenly these teams are like, our number one priority was safety. That was guiding principle number one. Now we're asked to do something where we are literally going under the mad mile. It's called the avalanche. Most dangerous environment in the world to try to save these guys. Do we do it or not? And it's an interesting one because some people are adamant. No, we, we can't because our guiding principle. And other people says, we can't leave people out there. And how do you align? And then suddenly, eventually the team comes together, makes a decision, and this is what they're going to do. And then we ask, so who on their team disagreed with that overall decision? And hands go up. And how did you align on that? So let's pause for a moment and look at your business. And that team may have been struggling through that Hmm. top-down decision that they have made. How do you do that? And then this great conversation happens in the room. And you begin to realize as a facilitator in these things, the less you talk, the better. Yeah, let them do the work. They just talk. (laughs) And it's wonderful. And then you listen to what they say. And then you say, so what do you think? And you just let it go. And that's how... That's the key, right? Like you don't know anything necessarily about specifically about their business. But what you do know is that the more they talk about their business, because they all can answer the questions, they just need to talk. And invariably, they're in silos, they're not talking, they're doing their thing. You get them in a room and get them talking to one another. That's your job. And I find it fascinating, certainly with senior leaders hearing the stuff, really, really bright people. So I just, I'm a fly in the wall in many ways, just listening to this stuff. Mm. It's awesome. How long do you usually work with a client? Is it like more of a brief summit thing? You're in and out or do you, do you have clients you work for over weeks, months, years? Years. Yeah. It tends to be, uh, now COVID time, they're becoming journeys. So instead of just being an event, it's kind of like a sugar high. It, it, it's like, okay, you, the way it's going to work moving forward is there is an event then there'll be monthly check-ins with virtual mm-hmm. spaces like on meetings, on Zoom meetings or whatever for 90 minutes at a time. Uh, and there'll also be an online training that people can do as well. So there's lots of stuff and this journey will go on for six, eight months or whatever period of time. Um, so that's the new model, which COVID has actually produced uh, a lot of opportunity for us as a business, frankly. Uh, it's been good, uh, albeit a, a crazy time, but it's uh, it's forced our hand and we realize it's it's a good one yeah i mean all the turmoil and the change management and then on top of that different environments and the way the teams uh, react uh, and and then have to adapt you know and again there's there's companies that that like i'm not gonna use the term pivot but have you know progressively evolved I hate that word too i just right? I've it's, stopped it's a little pivot. overdone uh, I haven't heard that. What does it mean? Businesses that evolved or devolved, oh, okay, and okay. they probably need to find their center again. Hmm. Um, so I'd imagine, like leadership training and leadership, it was so important because you know a lot of people, as individuals personally, were lost, and a lot of businesses were, you know, it was pretty much that scenario of finding your way through through a storm and some pretty dark moments. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, then that's everyone needed that more than ever. And I think that the companies that were able to kind of embrace change and leadership and have good communication came out of this um, well. And I mean, there's economic factors that allowed some companies to excel very quickly and some to you know get depleted completely. Um, but beyond that, there's all that creativity and all that change that really would do well. Do you find your framework? of this simulated adventure is that unique to you is that something you've developed or is this something that similar outfits kind of do or mimic no we're, we're really 
totally unique in that uh it's and they were doing it for a while and you kind of came on oh yeah yeah i've been i came in i've been with them now since yeah probably and and actually interest i i saw the moment you connected with that company because where did it happen kevin where did you first learn about it and where did you first make your networking connection with this we actually uh we shot a gun at two of the members it's an interesting story we're out of the northwest passage i was there i could have been uh, in on this yes and we we're literally on the northwest passage and we had our shotgun out because we're on we're on the beach and we're on the beach this lady bears. franklin point yeah I believe. Cape lady franklin mm-hmm. yeah at that little place and uh we knew that there was these couple australian guys uh in this sailboat rowing hybrid thing uh behind us but we expected them to pass this earlier because they're sailing and we we're rowing we're going way slower but we were on this beach because there's polar bears around. You have a gun out and you have to discharge the gun uh, to make sure it's clean. And we had a bit of fun. So we there was no piece of plywood we had propped up. and Target poof, practice. Yeah, you got to be able to hit the hit, 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 hit And it, we man. couldn't hit the damn thing. And it was just hey, propped I was up. Yeah, time. maybe you did. But I, Dennis certainly didn't. And no, I know I don't think I did. With a shotgun? <laughs> Shotgun. And you guys couldn't hit a board? Well, it was a ways. Slug. Slug, slug not, not... Okay, not, so it wasn't Buckshot. No, no, it wasn't Buckshot. Yeah. We did have both, actually, though. Yeah. yeah, but we figured that a slug will... The only thing that's going to that take down That is fair. I'm not, I'm not really much of a, a gunslinger. Yeah, but we were... Either us and the the plywood was sort of right at the edge of the beach. And we're boom, shooting out into the water. And then I remember Frank joking to Dennis, going, good thing there's... Uh, with that shot like that, good thing there's <laughs> no one out there. And he goes, hold on a moment. What's that? And sure enough, in the distance, exactly where we were shooting, like two kilometers away, there's this tiny dot coming right towards us. Sailboat, yeah. <laughs> of course, shotgun, fortunately, was not shooting that far because we were literally shooting at them. And uh, before long, this boat appeared and there was the two Aussies. And uh, they became, we hung out for the night uh, at Cape Lady Franklin. Cam and Matt, Cam as and I Matt, recall. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, both of them worked for the company which I am now currently working for called and Paul actually one of the other Irishmen yeah. has also worked yeah for he's well. doing yeah. contract work yeah. for them uh, to Ireland so uh, in Ireland so it was this sort of just happened phenomenal connection yeah and, and because they're adventurers doing this sort of thing and we were and we connected and the conversation kept going and it was not like hey we're hiring you but it was more like I kind of was interested in what they were doing. They were kind of interested in me. And there was this kind of mutual stalking a little bit without committing. And after about a year, I got to a point then that it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do something and do a facilitation. And then I got to know the the owner of the business, uh, Shane, Shane Tui, really well. And he's become a really close friend. And uh, we're a small team, but dude, some wicked stuff, really interesting stuff. And all of like mine, back again to that adventure, because the root of it is adventurers doing that sort of thing, right? And uh, I find that very, very inspiring because it's something I love to do. And I feel there's a lot of lessons learned out there that you can bring to a business world. And in turn, they find it super stimulating because they're hearing about these super cool adventures, which they're too busy in the boardroom ever to be out doing it. So at least virtually they can enjoy it and uh, be part of it. So yeah, it's cool. So you're, you're, you knew when you were like five, you wanted to be an architect? Uh, yeah, strangely, uh, or young. Maybe so I was how seven. long did it take for the adventure part to kick in? Uh, I'll thank you for that in many ways. Uh, seriously. Uh, thank uh, or curse, perhaps. Well, yeah. yeah. No, it was both. you. It was because we had, <laughs> when we were running, and, and I've always had a kind of an inkling towards it, to be honest with you. And 
and another story altogether I, I can get to later about my journey to the South Pole and that kind of passion to do that was there all along for a long time. But um, you were going to, uh, you had already canoed across Canada at that time when we met, but you were then thinking about canoeing the other direction from west to east, which had never been done. And uh, I remember you prepping for it and getting ready for it. And I just found it really kind of super inspiring that, wow, this this epic journey to get ready for and to do. And watching that unfold and how uh, it was ended, uh, ended in near disaster for yourself in terms of nearly dying up in the Babine. Right. We got washed down the Babine and, and Kevin and his wife, Nikki, they ended up, because we decided to keep going a week later and they ended up driving 16 hours or whatever it was from Vancouver with all our gear to resupply so we can keep, keep on well, going. I remember getting the call from Frank <laughs> and actually the only time I'm like, this is the coolest customer you've ever met. I mean, the guy jumps up literally a hundred foot cliff and just always cold, cool, was emotional on the phone, like telling me the story. Like I could hear emotion in your voice. And mm. I was like, holy shit, sorry. Uh, that must have been pretty crazy. If, if if Frank Wolf shows any emotion, it must have been near death experience. End of story. I believe you told it in an earlier episode. Yeah, so this yes. is when you yeah. had commenced a journey that was supposed to be across country by canoe. And within West two, or, East. Yeah. two or three weeks, it was lost gear, broken ribs. Um, you know, Many maybe you both thought yeah. the other had died because one had been swept down. Is that the story? That's the yes, one. That's the one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's chapter one of uh, Lines in a Map available at a bookstore. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we, I think we, we, you did go through that story in the podcast as well. But you did continue, but eventually um, you stopped that yeah. expedition for obvious reasons injury. Uh, and then just. We were soft, as I recall now. But anyway, and broken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but no. But after something like that, <laughs> and he and, called you, and you—that was you. Well, he called me, and yeah. it was funny because at the time uh, we were just becoming really good friends. And uh, he says, "Any chance you could bring the boat up?" I said, "Yeah, absolutely." Uh, where are you, Hazelton? Sure, we'll just drive up. <laughs> I I didn't know BC very well. I was pretty fresh out here, and I had no idea Hazelton is a long way away. And you couldn't Google Map it then. You said, "Oh, here's a map." Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 What, what is it like? What, you know, it's so Kamloops? 12 hours later. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like 16 hours. Ooh, like it was this yeah. crazy long drive. and <laughs> But it was awesome. Yeah. And so Nikki and I just hopped in the car and off we went. And uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing you. and was like, oh my God, you were like a skeleton. Like you had lost so much weight. Yeah. We were doing and, some big portaging and dragging. But in this short period of time, it was like, oh, wow. Like this physical transformation. And, and Ben was... His belly was extended out like he was like these one of these little poor children that are starving. He videos. swallowed a bit of water and air as he almost drowned. In the I just thought, yeah. are you sure, guys, want to continue? We could just come back with us. <laughs> like it would be so much easier. But again, that got me intrigued. Like this, there was something about it that intrigued me. With uh, and you adventure. came at yeah. you, know, uh, you came at that with a history of athleticism. So obviously, you, you were running races. You were cyclist, from what you yeah. mentioned earlier. So you, you came at provincial team. Yeah, well, yeah. I was, uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was, I was, you know, I was a good cyclist. I was, a, 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 what do they call it, Cat One. I was an expert level track rider. And uh, I, I remember the, I had a choice to make after graduating. Uh, the Quebec coach said, so if you want to, if you want to, I'm going to train you, but you have to quit architecture if you're going to train you. And you have to give it about four Like years. go for the Olympics or pros whatever. or whatever. Like, yeah. Let's see yeah. where you go. And realistically, I knew I just didn't have that. Yeah. I, like I didn't. I wasn't going to be, yeah, who knows? Maybe I could do reasonably good uh, in some races, but I certainly wasn't going to turn pro and I certainly wasn't going to win the Olympics. 
by any stretch. You could have come 45th in the Olympics, Kevin. Yeah, if I, but that would be amazing, I know. right? Like, that's think, that's like, that's like that's think about it. You're 45th in the world and all the dedication. And a close friend of mine, Mike Belcourt, he, uh, uh, we were we were buddies, kind of like us with training. And um, Mike was just a little bit better. And he went to the Olympics twice and he came 13th in the world. Um, and no one's never heard of him. No, yeah. they haven't. But he, it's incredible. Like yeah. he was he's such an immensely talented athlete. But in the end, I, at the time, I said, no, that's mm-hmm. it. And I quit. Uh, but it's, it teaches you things. Uh, with cycling, I realized, you know, I probably would have been a better runner, actually, than a cyclist, I think, mm-hmm. had I ever started at a young age. But um, it was, uh, I brought that athleticism, I suppose, or at least an approach. Well, physical to- endurance and, and that ability to push yourself, right? And that it's a natural step to do something more adventurous. And you can take... The, the pain cave, the suffering, um, the perseverance, and then you can apply it to, you know, I don't know if I would use the term creative, but yeah, I mean, outdoor adventures require all these things you, you discussed, you know, team, uh, team building or, or, you know, communication skills, planning, route finding, and then dealing with adversity. And there's a certain amount of adversity when you race, but usually it's close courses and there's much, much less variables. Um, whereas being outside, like you said, you know, okay, hitting, avalanches weather and then just going chart places that are largely unknown um and i think you know in my experience i mean i i was lucky to to toy with athletics and i i ski raced and i cross country ran and i rode but i didn't pursue it for any long period of time i did it seriously for a couple years two or three years in high school and then i traveled and i was playing music and doing other things so i kind of phased out of it and luckily, uh, when I moved to BC, I started working at what was Mount Okuma Co-op, where I met Frank. And, um, you know, having traveled and then been at university for a couple of years, I wasn't particularly active. But soon enough, I'm backcountry skiing. And um, it was nice to have that background in athletics and, and skiing. So I could ski, which was nice. Um, and I could step back into it, which was nice. But, um, you know, for those that are going at adventure and they want to start doing something like uh, trail running is really popular long distance trail running backcountry skiing um through hiking <laughs> without a background in athletics you know it's you got to start from 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 the bottom in a way and i don't know actually coming at that later in life how much success one can have and i'm sure you can do incredible things but if you'd grown up being an athlete um even an amateur must be the building block and, and you know you two were competitive athletes and did really well in your field. And then both of you, and, and then I'm not sure, Frank, if you did a lot of adventure at a young age, but you know, you did athletics seriously. And then it was a natural progression once you were inspired to go outside. Yeah. I think, I think ultimately like long distance sports, especially like cycling or running or whatever, gives you a mental tenacity that carries over naturally into the outdoors. And I think Kevin, you, you, you'd once told me that you, but the best thing that ever happened to you in terms of like that kind of turned you into adventure is that you got injured cycling and you couldn't cycle and you started rock climbing and that yeah. kind of got you into it. Like, and where did that, was that Whistler or where was that again? It was here actually. Yeah. Interestingly, I got back into doing a bit of riding and then started racing and didn't think much of it, but started to do actually quite well and, and placed, you know, second or third in a BC cup. And, and uh, I thought, oh, okay, I could have, I could have done better at that. I could have maybe won that if I'd done this. And and I started getting caught up and thinking, okay, well, train harder. Yeah, and Nikki said, <laughs> what the hell are you doing? You made that decision already. And I was thinking about it, and then, sure enough, I hurt myself and uh, tore something in my hamstring, and I 
just couldn't ride. I, I had been lined up. I'd been asked to be part of this team and I was going to be the, I was a climber. I was good climbing on the bike and I was the climber and there was a sprinter. And this was a really core elite team that we were going to be and I couldn't do it. And it was forced my hand. And next thing I know, I said, well, okay, maybe I'll try rock climbing. And I was like, wow, that's super cool. That's like nothing I've ever done before. And I was scared to death at first. And then next thing you know, Nikki and I are up there, go up on the apron, try to figure out, will this anchor work? You know, and it was like <laughs> just figuring it out ourselves, but it was so cool and so different than anything I'd ever done. And the next thing you know, starting to run and doing the grouse grind of all things. And I did the grouse grind and I, I just as a kick or fundraiser, and there was this Olympian and all these people at it, and I won it. <laughs> I went, oh, maybe I'm actually good at this stuff. <laughs> and next thing you know, just one led to the other, Nienacker with yourself, and but just doing different things. And it wasn't being focused on any one thing. It was just kind of fun to do everything. And um, that's where the that was the adventure spirit right there. Absolutely, was that uh, that big? I guess it's almost like it's rather than being a race, you're challenging yourself. Yeah. In the natural elements, yeah, it's more about like either a summit or or a, or a physical goal, but it's not like you running on like say a gerbil wheel, like yeah, say a race yeah. would be, right? Yeah, so it's kind of like more that your ten k time, like it, it's cares? something you're creating. It's creative in a way. You're you're kind of yep. you're imagining it. You're envisioning the adventure. You're envisioning the goal, whatever it may be, getting the top of a, a rock climb or 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 skiing to the South Pole, whatever it is. They all kind of relate in that way. It's it's like something. It's it's all you. It's not like there's no margin for safety. You're kind of in control of yep. almost everything, and you have this kind of goal that drives you. And it, yep. but it, it's your own thing. It's not like a competition. It's it's kind of competition within the elements, maybe, but it's more almost more like a just challenging yourself and figuring out a puzzle in some ways, yep. right? So because you, know. you can't, right? Yeah. You can't compete against the environment, right? Because mm-hmm. if yeah, you take what lose, you right? take what Mother Nature gives yeah. you, and you in, just in deal with it, you accommodate, and you work around it. And the second you start, as you know more than anybody. That you can, if you try to compete against it, then you're, that's when everything falls apart because yeah. you just have to adapt and say, well, no, we, it's crazy storm. We can't go right now. Well, actually, I think we can thread it if we go now. And, you know, you're, it's being creative on your way. But also, there's a lot of parameters that you only have so much food. You only have so much time. And there's other things coming. And being able to work that through, I find it incredibly inspiring. And that's where I actually really enjoy with my kids, uh, taking my kids out on things like that, was that a lot of times I find... Uh, that it really, in many ways, that's where I seeing them being empowered through that environment, seeing it firsthand with my little ones. Uh, we, we went on that kayak journey down the Mackenzie River with them, which was like a 45 day excursion mm-hmm. down, you know, the right to the Arctic Ocean. So, what, what was that? Describe that again. That was from Hay from, River, like the source of the Mackenzie, all the way to all the way Inuvik, to Anubik. Right? We yeah. decided not to do that final stretch, which you and I did actually yeah. in the Arctic Jewel uh, years a couple of years earlier, uh, down to the Arctic Ocean, because at the time we were we were just a single family. We originally were two families. The uh, the, the family we started with decided it was a bit too much and decided to stop uh, after ten days. So we were up by ourselves, going in a very remote terrain uh, for. Uh, a long time. And how old were your daughters at the time? Uh, they were nine and 11, I believe. So young, little girls. And mm-hmm. in big wilderness, you know, not super technical in any way. Of course, we all know the Mackenzie just a big floor and there's a little bit of a rapid at one point. It's nothing really. Uh, but it's just wild, right? There's no one out there and mm-hmm. there's bears and there's wolves and there's lots of things and, and there's little girls and you're, you're da- the daddy and you want to take care of them. And <laughs> that was... But watching them journey through this environment and seeing them pop out the other end and seeing them change 
you know, and it's really empowering. That's the magic of adventure, pushing yourself to that, uh, being really uncomfortable mm -hmm. and not sure whether you can do it and being able to do it. And actually a critical moment when the other family decided to step out, it was the last point where we could step out. We we're a quarter into it. We still had like 1200 kilometers to go. And, uh, I remember asking because it was just too much at that point. Mm -hmm. And I asked my daughters whether they wanted to continue. And they both of them said unanimously, yeah, 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 let's keep going, Dad. So it was pretty cool to see that. And they took to it well and they were into they it. They did. I mean, they hated it on so many levels too, right? Because <laughs> like there's ah, ah, complaining and they still complain about it. But Dad, How long was the trip? Days? Like 45 days, I think, to door to door. It was epic. I mean, I think we were 30 odd on the river, but we had to drive. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was quite, it's quite a journey. It's amazing. But they've been, they've been grounded in adventure. Darn right. And even though it seems like right now, Kevin, they're not into adventure as much, they will circle back to it. Oh, you they know will. they will. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know they will. I hope yeah. not too much because I don't want them doing something crazy and yeah. freaking But in, in some moment. way, shape, and form. Yeah. yeah they're not, they're no. not going to shy away from you know, that sort of thing, you know, they'll probably be with their own creativity and it's and great. spirit. Yeah, and and I that. actually have confidence as young women, um, young girls becoming young women. Now they're 16 and 18 now is that, uh, just having that confidence, you know, I can do this and not going to be held back. And, uh, and you guys must be like an, uh, incredible family unit having gone through that, you know, as a team building exercise, yeah. um, you know, and, and I, I use the term team building with obviously a little bit of uh, sarcasm because it's such a cliche term. It's like, oh, we're going to walk in the park. It's a team building thing. Yeah. Or we're going to go, you know, play Jenga or whatever, you know, corporate team building, I'm sure comes in, in many shades, but um, legitimately, like most families don't spend that much time in, in close proximity to one another. And most families don't accomplish that much. Um, you know, in terms of a project or like a, you know, finished goal like that. So that's really amazing. And again, I'm sure, um, your, your daughters will take that, that experience and that talent, but also that freedom and the comfort of being out, outdoors and being able to solve their own problems at such a young age. Yeah. And it was cool because part of it, they're like every kid of their age was, you know, obsessed with their handheld device, be it whatever it was. Uh, at the time, it was iPads, I think, but uh, phones or whatever it was. And we we were disconnected completely as we had to be when we were out there for whatever, a month and a half or like there was nothing. And, eh, you know, no and problem. that was golden. And that's so critical. And they de dealt yeah. with it. But of course, they came back and they were back on them again. But you realize that, OK, well, that's reality. Uh, but it's possible. And they can see the other side of it. And they were creative. And it was funny uh, you seeing them on the beaches of, of Mackenzie because they wouldn't be sitting on a phone. They'd be just uh, building things. Figuring out things to have fun with. Building yeah. little huts. Like and, people have for thousands of yeah, years. Yeah, like we did yeah. as kids, right? And it was like pretty cool to just watch it, sitting around the campfire, doing whatever, sipping whiskey, watching my daughters do it. They were sipping whiskey too? I Good was for sipping them. whiskey. Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't share certain things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then what, what do you, so as far as your adventures, so you've done these adventures with daughters. I know you also, you also cycled from like, uh, is it Paris to Rome or Rome to Paris? Yeah, we uh, from Paris to Rome. Paris to Rome. As well as... How uh, long was that trip? Uh, that was uh, almost 2,000 kilometers, yeah. 25 days uh, with them. And, and how old were they? They were, again, they were like... Well, a few years ago, four or five years ago. So they were still 12, pretty young. 12, 14. 12, 14, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They kind of lose track of their age, but they were young. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, we biked down the west coast of Ireland, which uh, about the same distance. Uh, it's called the Wild Atlantic Way from 
for the northern tip uh, from Londonderry um, uh, or Derry, as uh, the Irish would say, to uh, Kinsale. Yeah, not uh, London. Come on. I yeah, know uh, it's uh, Londonderry. Dirty, dirty words. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, you have a passport. Were you born in Ireland, or, or was your parents? No, uh, my folks were. My folks uh, came over, uh, had me. Uh, my both uh, my parents. Uh, my dad was born in Six Mile Bridge, which is outside, of, out of Limerick. And uh, my mom was born in Limerick, Ireland, and they met and came over to Canada, had me in their early 20s. So really, all my relatives, bar none, every single relative I have is in Ireland. Uh, We are the first generation, so we go back a fair bit. And my dad passed away. My mom's alive and lives uh, in Ottawa with my sister. And uh, yeah, we're a very small family unit. So really, Ireland is still kind of key to us. That's awesome. One thing you mentioned, Limerick. Do you, you take any of your <clears throat> any any of your, your grasp of writing or your your will to create from some of that Irish heritage? I think of old school Ireland as a place of, of poets and and writers. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's I, where it comes from, but I, I'm much more drawn to creativity and to an irrational way is that I really care about the money so much. I just want to create something and I'm just kind of into it. And uh, and then I'll curse and complain that I make no money, I suppose, but that's, I don't care. I'm still there and I, I laugh about it because architecture is a very poorly paying profession, te- desperately poor paying. Um, but... Given the circumstance, if I was asked what would I study at university, I'd probably go back into architecture. It was a great <laughs> education and it was a really interesting program and you came out with an amazing, unique degree. So my daughter is going into it. She knows full well my feelings about it in terms of like it's going to be a tough go, but I still think it's uh, pretty cool. It seemed to be drawn to things like that. I don't know why. Yeah, uh, and, and your parents, I met your mother. She's you know a lovely woman. You met very, my dad too. Very fire, very fit. I met your dad only once. Yeah. I got, know your mother quite well. And then uh, I hung out through Montreal for a week before. She, yeah. We stayed at her place, yeah, me yeah. and Todd. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And then, um, but uh, but I think your dad, knowing him, he was he, he kind of he kind of ran the Cinegale, which is an Irish art film festival. Film fest, yeah. yeah. And uh, and he, he was a teacher and passionate about the art. So I think you probably get a lot of your creativity from him in terms of that kind of different kind of creativity it, it, again he never made a cent out of being a filmmaker no, no like he was he a filmmaker it. as well right yeah. he just loved it and, yeah. and it's like he didn't care about the the money and that sort of thing no. he did it because he was engaged by it he was impassioned by it and yeah. i think ultimately that's the main thing you can't you know money doesn't make anyone happy but if you're engaged in what you're doing ultimately i think that's what it is i think that's probably something you got from your father i don't know not yeah. you got it from from him but his, no, no, his no, inspiration right. in many ways yeah so, no for yeah. sure my mom is more practical yeah. in that way even though you're like a montreal city kid you got the creativity but then there's also an adventure that came out of that well too. the irony yeah. of that right yeah. it's like i my we lived in inner city montreal we never owned a car so i grew up my whole life and never owned a car uh, ever and uh, I only learned to drive when I came out to British Columbia, meeting Nikki. And I said, well, she wanted to buy a car because I never bought a car here either. I just And you didn't have a license? No, because I never, <laughs> well, I didn't need one because I was never going to buy a car. I had a bike. So I just never even, it's interesting when you're gonna, you grow up. You're such a millennial, something. Kevin. But yeah. it's interesting how you grow up with something <laughs> and you never have it. Right? City. You're a city, normal city person. I'm because, a city kid. You know, if you're from New York or London or, mm-hmm. or central Montreal, 
Um, why would you ever drive? And I know you don't need one, and it's, right? It's very refreshing, and then you know we've touched on North America. It's built for cars, and I found it really exciting. I was a late adopter to purchase a car, and I've been through a few cars since. But when I got rid of my car, you're a Volvo man. I, I am a Volvo man. 1990s vintage. Nice. Yeah. It's the best vintage. You know? <laughs> but when I ditched my car and I started sharing my vehicle with my partner, I just found it actually kind of exciting and interesting to find all the different ways i could get through the city so i had evo car share i had obviously transit so bus sky train my bike and then just walking and then on top of that of course there's cabs or ubers and i was like i can get everywhere and you just find a faster better way to get everywhere yeah and um yeah i don't know this this reliance on the vehicle is just a necessity i grew up in a small town um in peterborough and there's oh, peterborough. Cool. not much going on i didn't need a car as a young kid I could walk to school, I could bike around, but then, you know, you inevitably needed a, a car to get places. Um, so that was always a part of my upbringing, but my cousin in Montreal, Montreal, there's, you know, growing up in NDG. That's you know, where I grew up, yeah. Really? Yeah. So my, my cousin, um, I have two cousins that grew up in Montreal and they lived uh, on Monkland. And you know okay. the Monkland Tavern? Right, I know it well. I he is Monkland. He's from NDG. I used to drink in the Monkland Tavern before it got... Gentrified and I've drank with Kevin's mother in the Monkland so Tavern. So my cousin, I <laughs> nice. I painted uh, some stools when they were renovating that. And my cousin lived in that building for the majority of the, the start of his life. Really? Um, and literally, I painted stools because he was helping the po- folks that was renovating it once upon a time, probably huh. in the late 90s. Uh, this might have been, you know, the original Reno before they really got it to be like more of a suave uh, Yeah, it turned into a nice place. I went there when it was fancier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. when I was there, the Monkland Town. It was just yeah. a pub. It like, was a, a rough downtrodden town. pub. Yeah, and you'd go in and I remember there'd be like, there was one big fat guy that'd sit in the far <laughs> corner and there was a few and we'd come in and you'd get quartz, right? In, in Montreal, you get you buy the quartz, the big. Like, glass. yeah, like the tall 50s. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, exactly. Double, it's yeah, like two bottles. You get export. Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. You always order a quart. And uh, I remember I'd always go with Frank Mulner, my my uh, friend who became a doctor. And I remember it was this massive jar <laughs> of, of like pig's feet. And it was just, just <laughs> sitting up there. And it had been sitting there forever, like years, I suppose. And I remember one time Frank decides, I want one of those. We've been drinking a lot. And he orders one. Sure Ooh. enough, they take one out and put it on the plate. And he proceeds to eat it. I was a vegetarian, thank God. But uh, that was the old Monkland Tab. And then, of course... <laughs> I left, and it became all kind of yeah, no, all night bling. But it's great, and I, the Monklin Street a cool is such neighborhood a cool. And there's more going on. It's different, but yeah, yeah, it's funny. My my upbringing in Toronto. I grew up in Peterborough, body family, Toronto. My my dad grew up in the beaches. Same thing, gentrified very very heavily. And my cousins that grew up there, like they didn't really want to stick around because it, it changed so much. But still, amazing, cool city spots in Canada. You know, NDG. And uh, the beaches in Toronto, like two epic neighborhoods. Yeah. And, you know, went from being totally lower working class yep. to being very hip spots, which is going to happen. People figure it out and it's cheaper and it's cooler. You're going to, you're going to so move close in. to downtown. Right. And we were, I mean, essentially I was maybe a 10 minute walk from the Monkland Tav <laughs> uh, from where I grew up. And uh, I lived in an apartment building. It was not the greatest area, but was home you know and we were just right on the edge of westmount and westmount was where the money was and we were uh, we were literally on the other side of the tracks so we were the other side of the tracks but i kind of liked that that was you know it is it is what it is and i never really saw myself in that situation then i just this is where i lived looking back on it now but um it's uh 
it's good, right? These things are good. Like to to come from uh, not being given everything. Uh, like my, I understood when I was uh, going to go to university from my folks is that we can't help you with your university. You're going to have to figure that out yourself. And your parents, they always rented. They never owned a place, nope. right? Yeah. yeah, they always rented because mm-hmm. we didn't have the money, right? Yeah. We just didn't. And whatever. But they made sure that we all had a good education, which we did. We all went to university. My, my sister's a, a, a PhD, professor. Yeah, at, yeah. <laughs> She's a doctor. She Ottawa or Carleton? Uh, University of Ottawa. And that's yeah. that's the one equation that I've heard in the past. It's and this, I'm, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but it, reality or sorry, happiness is is like reality minus expectations. To start <laughs> to start at a lower middle class and to move up is is very rewarding. And imagine whereas starting high, um, where do you go from there? And then you know how do you get the meaning? And you know you've earned what you have, and you've yeah. had an amazing career, and you've done it all under your own steam. You have no perspective, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I worry about that because some people I know, it's like if that is the equation, then I've kind of scored because I never had super high ambitions for myself, and I think only middle life I've realized, oh, like I have the capacity to do a, to a lot if I put my mind to it. And, um, you know, I'm able to move around and, and travel in a lot of different circles. And it's interesting. And it's nice to be able to be a bit of a chameleon because, you know, you can roll into a gala and, you know, talk to executives or, you know, interesting people that, that, that have phenomenal careers or are famous or have more money. And it's, it's nice to be able to kind of move in, the, the, in, in and out of those spaces. Whereas also, and I think, you know, Frank's testament to this, also it's just nice to be able to go back to your, your old haunts or to roll into a regular pub and just, just chill, you know, without being a tourist and being able to just kind of like kind of move in and out of the scenarios. And it's really a luxury that we have. And the three of us at this this table, so to speak, we're all white, we're all middle-aged, and we're all of a decent amount of privilege and a huge amount of privilege. You're not quite middle-aged, should you be? Growing right up now. in Canada. None of your business, sir. <laughs> Not even in your forties, are you? No. See, God. this is just a kid over just here. Yeah. Remember but that? but I'm, I'm, <laughs> you my son. I'm pushing forty. Like let's oh. just say it's it's spending. The, twenty twenty twenty. A river, buddy. Yeah. Well, twenty two is going to be by far the biggest year of my life with the changes that are coming down the pipe. Specifically, I'm having a child hey, in the next five weeks. Oh, really? Five weeks? I got engaged a month ago, and we probably are going to move. So it's going to be. A wild year. Move from Vancouver or just in Vancouver? We're yeah. Speaking of architecture, we're we're trying to potentially get our first place, oh. and um, Kirsten's wanting a house. So by defect, you got far away. We're looking, we're looking uh, <laughs> elsewhere, and then the, this benefit we thought about uh, working remote will hopefully allow me to maintain my same job or at least stay in the same career with the, the Vancouver outdoor industry, um, and be able to travel back a little bit, and then just gonna get. A, a nice little cave like this that I can focus in. Where do you think? Uh, any thoughts? On where you know, uh, it's a dirty word. Uh, Nanaimo. Nanaimo. Starts oh, with you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Surrey by the sea. And I, I dig Nanaimo, and I think that, there's some. I mean, there a friend are, of mine just moved there. I'm yeah. attracted to the grit, and and I think Nanaimo is going to be really cool. And then it, there's there's a lot of parts of me that are torn. You know, being cognizant of gentrification, having studied geography, and knowing that I'm a driver of gentrification. I'm going to move to this city and I'm like thinking, you know, my neighbors and my new neighbors, what are they going to think of me? How is the city changing for them? So I have that, I have the wherewithal to think about those things. But hmm. that being said, you know, change is constant and you'll have all... your car up in blocks the next morning, be kind of like a welcome to the neighborhood. <laughs> exactly. I'll just uninsure it. <laughs> you know? 
Actually, they'll leave it alone because it's a 1994 uh, yeah, exactly. uh, yeah, Volvo go. 740 He's one Turbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, so it's going to be a wild year. And, uh, wow. Yeah. It's going to be super exciting, man. It's a bad, yeah, it's, uh, I remember. Well, Kevin, how old were you when you had your first? You're kind of your age. 39, was, 40. No, I was a little younger. I was, uh, second was 39, I believe. Uh, what would I have been? Uh Oh no, you're right. I was 39. Yeah, Nikki was a, yeah, Nikki was a little bit, yeah, yeah, a couple yeah. years younger, yeah, but 39. yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah, same, same. So, yeah. so any, yeah. any, any advice for Adam about? Uh, Don't blink. That's honestly, <laughs> and I remember holding Caitlin in my arms, and uh, she was just this little blob, and someone knocked at the door and to deliver a package, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, signing it and uh, just holding her, and I remember him looking at me and says, "Buddy." Don't blink. Yeah. It's going to be over like that. And I, and I went, yeah, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and I remember thinking to this day, that guy knew yeah. exactly what he was it. talking I have about. friends that have kids that are now, you know, four, six, nine, ten. And I was talking to a good friend, Jeff, the weave, the other day. And he's like, oh, I had that moment where I saw my girls. I think they're probably like, I'm going to say four and seven or something. We're maybe five and eight. He's like, oh, it's, it's disappearing. And, yeah. You know, I think that the other fact that I'll bring into this, the only other fact that I can hang my hat on is that every minute of your life is, is a lesser or a lesser fraction than subsequent minute Yes, or the opposite. And, and time does seem to elapse quicker. And I think as I've grown over, I've been older, I've been busier. So taking on side projects such as this, working and applying myself to career more, and then still finding time for friends, family, socials skiing and just anything else so you know it's chock-a-block and um i should probably slow down and take time to be bored and chill and meditate but you know this is the pace and this is but you always remember everything is like yesterday it's honestly it's like being in a sports car accelerating to a brick wall because it's just whack it stops and it ends so enjoy the ride and rather than obsess on things because it's gonna end yeah and you know it it does like it's just shocking and to give you a sort of a you know getting a few years on i'm 57 and um we had our 40th high school reunion which was canceled but we decided to get together and a group of us did in montreal there just recently and it's weird to sit down and i have all these projects that i'm doing and i still feel honestly, I feel young, right? I still feel good and I'm going to do a trip and I just feel still young, but I'm 50, bloody seven years old. I'm an old man. I'm, I'm well, a senior citizen, right? And, you get the uh, discounted IHOP, right? I do. I, yeah. I can get the I'll discount. I'll you there because yeah. my father still lives in, outside of Peterborough in the house that I was born in. Nice. He's 72 and he's obsessed with whitewater paddling. Awesome. He bikes. He's a landscaper by trade, so he works with his hands still Strong to this day. And he lives on on a on a farm, so he's always working. And uh, he can outpace me. I went canoeing, but when I was back nice. there six weeks ago, sure enough, we're just chilling out uh, near Warsaw, upriver, whatever, a few portages. And sure enough, I'm sitting back, kind of like um, the okay, portage time. Of course, my dad doesn't even flinch. He's like, obviously, he's going to portage the canoe because his young, lazy son is yeah. going <laughs> to carry the little backpack, soft, uh, carry all the ultralight gear that I brought <laughs> from my company. You know, because I sit in my office all day. It's uh, it's inspiring. And again, he's fit as a fiddle. And, and it's good, see, huh? See, you guys, you guys got another 20 or 30 years. And technology is on our side and good decision making and, and the ability to live a balanced, healthy life, which you seem to have pretty dialed. Well, in. he's got a Guinness in his hand right I there. Do. You know, that's balance. Balance. Yeah. Yeah. Iron. Yeah. Fortified. That's, that's true. But, but, be, but, Adam, but, and the but, and the big 
spot here is you just never know. My dad was super healthy. He was mm-hmm. uh, a really healthy guy. And then he got cancer and he died. And it was like out of the blue, just out of left field, bang. And it's like, well, bloody hell, you know. And uh, just recently uh, with this particular reunion, I found out of uh, one of my classmates who I hadn't connected with in a number of years, but he lives in Vancouver or did. He died of a heart attack. He just died of a heart attack. And he's a super fit guy. He was my age. Just happened there a few weeks ago. And I, at the same weekend, I got a call from uh, or an email from a friend of mine that I, a good friend, I knew from England in London when I was living there and she just said, I want to talk to you. And I connected with her and she says, yeah, I have terminal cancer. I'm going to be dead in six months. And it's like all in a couple of days and you hear this and you go, okay, hold on a moment here. Uh, it's like, it sucks on so many levels, but it reaffirms my thinking is that you just got to live now. You can't always be yeah. aspiring. Mm-hmm. I want to make more money so I can sit on a beach and have my little place. Then you're going to hate your life because it's going to be meaningless. Who ever likes to sit around doing nothing anyway? You make sure you live before live now, you man. die. And the yeah. number one cause of death <laughs> is birth. Well, yeah, there. And the second is Let's retirement. Let's end on that note, folks. Yeah. Yes, and the second is retirement, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, and, and, seriously. No, and people lose their Retire, purpose. And, it's you know. you're biding time till death. I mean, yeah. really, like at that point, yeah. like I'm never going to retire while I'm an architect. I can, I can never retire, yeah. but is but I wouldn't want to. But as an architect, too, it's, it's pretty neat that you have, you know, you have basically in, in concert or in parallel, you have three channels that we're, we're touching on. I'm sure you do a lot more than that. Um, but as a professional, as an architect, you could easily bury yourself in a firm and work, you know, work more and, and to get ahead there. And, in case, and instead you've chosen the opposite. You've, you've, you know, basically balanced out your life and diversified, diversified your career, uh, into something, you know, really interesting that you stumbled upon in the Arctic, yep. which is pretty phenomenal. Um, and yeah, and, and, and not burying yourself in one thing. And I think that's one thing that I've done over the last five years personally um haven't accomplished as much but i've chosen to do things in parallel go to take courses um take on side gigs or side projects like this that just are interesting and they they do come back and give me life skills but it just shakes it up no but it also makes you better and it's interesting because i learned this at a very young age really beneficial to be in architecture because architecture is an industry and a culture of working insane hours right like that's what you do you work 100 hour weeks that's what unlike they do an engineer unlike like engineers work hard architects way harder like mm-hmm. architects are on another level of stupidity because of it's, it's almost like a badge of honor or something. yeah the more yeah. you can work the better yeah. all-nighters multiple all-nighters right away my second night in uh, uh our second day in architectural school was spent as an all-nighter because they gave us a project that we couldn't finish by the next day intentionally no, intentionally no, no. like full well that get used to it this is going to be your life moving forward but what changed me was um, that uh, I, I did that. I did that for the first year, like a maniac. And I was doing well in school, but I everything else fell apart. Like I was bike racing at the time, quit. I All my friends, gone. Never hung out, never was at home, ate like crap, just stayed in the studio eating bagels and cream cheese and coffee, literally. And made it through first year. 15% of my class was gone after year one. Year two, same thing, buried, down, going hard. I remember going into uh, into the final exams uh, at Christmas and thinking to myself, I don't have enough time. If I stayed awake 24 hours a day for the following next week, I still wouldn't have time to finish everything. And um, uh, until one thing happened and then everything changed. And 
uh, I was on a group project with uh, with these friends, uh, with Dave and Julie, and we were doing a, a group project, and we had our final crit on Friday. And you work like crazy. It was Wednesday. We were working super hard, and we weren't close. So we pulled an all-nighter Wednesday night. And Thursday, another all-nighter, another one. And then Friday, we put up our projects and everything, and we were exhausted. And uh, I remember just going, I have to sleep. I haven't slept in two days. And uh, Dave and Julie were sweethearts. They just hooked up. And they said, we're going out dancing. You got to come. And I said, no, I can't. I'm, I'm going to see you in the morning. It was right at the end of the semester. And we had free end drawing class uh, every Saturday morning. So we had to grab, you know, dig ourselves up and come in for 9 a.m. on Saturday mornings and, and do this free end drawing class. And I remember coming in the next morning and um, McGill University, for people that are listening who've uh, been there, you, you know, the big old buildings and our McDonald Harrington building is this uh, big stone building. And I remember massive wood doors. And I remember opening the door and immediately I knew something was wrong. It was this weird sensation. Had you gone dancing or not? No. So no, you didn't? I didn't. So you go. slept. You went back to school Saturday yeah, and morning. I was going to meet them the next morning. And I remember I knew something was wrong. And I remember going up the stairs uh, and it was like, I just knew something was wrong. It was the weirdest sensation. And um, then I thought I heard people crying because I was going up to my freehand drawing class. And... Uh, and then I came up to that level and I remember seeing this group of people and my classmates who were supposed to be drawing. I was a little late and people were crying. And, and then I saw Julie and she was in this group of people. And I remember looking at me and seeing her and this, I'd never seen an expression. I was 19. Mm-hmm. I liked that before. And um, it was just this parse. It was just a look I'd never seen. And uh, Dave died in her arms that night. He had had a heart attack at 19. He dropped what? dead of a heart attack in his in her arms. And I remember going, for me, it was like, this can't happen. Like, it's not supposed Just to happen. Just an anomaly. Just Aneurysm, but brought on by overwork and over, uh, over sleep, okay. lack of sleep. Stress. And I mean, yeah, and I think there's, there's all these conversations happening now and stress and mental health is one of those things that's trending high and i think it's it's great that it is more of a conversation and unfortunately it's also more of a conversation because we're in retrograde you know people pushing themselves too hard and and falling into these traps with modern living and you know male suicide rates are going up and stuff like that it's it's a direct consequence of like you said a tangible metric that's like okay well you know you'll you'll kill yourself and one question i have your leadership and so you meet a lot of high firing people that that likely work long hours work too much where is the point of diminishing returns with your work and you can think back to those nights now at what point would you have been more successful and more productive if you just would have said actually i'm going to go to bed 12 and wake up at 5 30 and i'm going to sleep and i'm going to cut that time and, and not have productivity in terms of output, but try to be like, where can you kind of find that sweet spot? And with, say, an executive that's been pushed to work 70, 90 hours a week, like at what point are they just zombies? Like, and they must, and, and then there's the fatal collapse and the burnout or, or, or your, their life falls apart. So they have to like rejig it. Or what's like, what's that sweet spot? There is. Well, a- what's interesting is that uh, in that after Dave passed away, I remember um, exactly that. And I remember stumbling up to the mountain. It was Christmas time or close to it. And it was freezing cold. And I remember just bawling my eyes out and saying, I'm not going to do this anymore. Can't. Stupid. I'm not going to work this hard. Screw it. And uh, I don't give a damn 
about architecture coming back. And it was a really insightful thing to the point you're talking about, because um, I said, nope, I'm going to start bike racing again. And I did. And I started racing at an elite level. And that became a very big focus of mine. And as a result, I started to take care of myself physically. I started eating better because I had to. I was training hard, so I couldn't eat Mountain Pecos all the time. So I was eating better. And I started to hang out with friends. And I, would, I was sleeping better. And I didn't pull all any all-nighters anymore. And everything sort of fell into place. Everything else fell into place. And screw it. I was going to spend less time doing architecture because I was going to do all this. Uh, so I expected my marks to drop. Um, the interesting thing was, after three and a half years, my art marks didn't drop. They actually went better. I was doing all this, balancing my life, and in fact, I my marks improved enough that I became the top graduating student from the university and won a Commonwealth scholarship to Cambridge University uh, after it. So that's the answer: is that uh, to tell to executives, you think you're doing better by working harder, you're wrong. Actually, you got to balance it better, and you got because when you actually then are working, you're more efficient when you're working, you're more effective when you're working, and a lot of times when you're being creative, you're creative out there. I, I should be charging clients when I'm out for my trail run because that's where I'm coming up with ideas. It's not sitting here at my desk. It's always you work, go away. That's when you come up with an idea, come back, you resolve it. So that's the takeaway. Like when you're dragging a tire, you get creative. <laughs> exactly. Right? Well, you'd be surprised. Right now, Kevin's been dragging tires up and down <laughs> for five hours a day. Not quite that much, but <laughs> sometimes you can't. Last weekend. Yeah, five hours. Yeah. yeah five hours of yeah. tire dragging. Yeah. yeah. But uh, he's training for. A expedition uh, across in the, Ellesmere in the winter time. In winter, yeah, uh, yeah. north south. I've never been done uh, polar night, so uh, yeah, it's going to be cold. It's going to be uh, daytime highs of minus thirty eight. So daytime. And how, how? What's the distance here? Eleven hundred k. So probably forty. And who are you dealing with? Uh, Ray Zahabi's uh, is a teammate of mine who you know, uh, and uh, he's. Uh, I skied to the South Pole with him. I've done it at various trips with him, and. Um, it's going to be uh, epic. And in both of us, it's going to be, we see it as being our last epic trip. I, I can't do anything like that again. I'm mm. 57. Uh, my physical fitness is nowhere where it used to be, I suppose, but I'm still pretty fit. You're crafty but, though, Kevin. You're crafty. crafty. Exactly. Yeah. So if you combine the two, you combine. Like experience. my knees are shot, but I'm crafty. Exactly. Because you know? <laughs> you're, exactly. Your physical falls apart a bit, but your your life experience is so much greater that the combined is better and more capable of achieving something and definitely and i feel that way it's almost like you're talking about as far as becoming more efficient in 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 architecture or anything like that any kind of uh profession yeah as you get older just by your experience you become more efficient at what you do yeah you become more efficient at at challenging yourself and you kind of you're not uh you pick your spots but in the end you're almost the same as they used to be yeah because you're not doing the stupid stuff exactly yeah yeah Yeah. you're not wasting energy right even wasting mental energy on things going yeah no i'm not even going to deal with it and i feel that there's something super satisfying you still feel young and alive and you know it i mean geez you're just coming back off this epic trip again every single year you do one to two major trips you're in your 50s now and i I remember years ago we were in baja (laughs) and there was some remember there was some guy sitting around the pool I think he was 33 or something like yeah. that. And you went, hey, you're older than that guy. Like I was 34. And he looked about 50 though. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. But He was, was like a large like marshmallow man yeah, but burning it, in the sun. But the know? funny part was, what, I was 34. Like I was a kid, right? And uh, in th- looking back on it now, and I felt, because uh, I always feel old. I always feel old because I'm always hang out with people like you who are younger than me or whatever. I always, my, my friends 
seem to be always younger. Uh, maybe because I just people that are kind of old. Well, there's chronological age and there's physical age, exactly. as they say. So there are a lot of 30-year-olds a lot older than us in terms of their uh, their physical age because yeah. they haven't taken care of themselves no. and they've never really not just an had old an active soul lifestyle then. yeah exactly yeah. not yeah. just an old soul yeah but an old ragged body and exactly yeah what's well, interesting is in you know, yeah. Vancouver you see yeah. a lot of street folk and uh, they're worn and yeah and they they age um, they age hard and then, you know I mean drugs really alcohol living outside poor mu- nutrition I've been accused it. of being street folk before yeah. well yeah. you're just lucky <laughs> that you true. have a warm place to lay your body most nights most nights yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, with that beard, which you sold, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you sold it. You did. Corey Fawcett up the hill here in Lynn Valley bought it for one hundred and ten dollars. You, yeah. you saw Frank. Donation you know. to Pacific Wild, what by the way. One hundred and ten dollars. That's not bad for not bad for a, a disgusting. What's he gonna do with it? Human. I don't know. It's up to him. It's a six month uh, <laughs> trip worn beard. Uh, going to sell it as an NFT for five thousand yeah. dollars. It's got a uh, a lap around Vancouver Island as well as a, a large canoe trip through uh, northern Saskatchewan, Alberta. Among other things, but who knows what that beard? Who knows what that beard has seen? But it's going to be Bobby thinks no one would want to talk about. As, as Corey called years. it, he called it my face squirrel that he has now bought. So he now has a face squirrel of yeah. his own. Yeah. Well, you did. You lost like ten years because you showed up at the house and Kirsten's like, oh, oh, this Frank. Like, oh, did she see me through the window? I think she. Well, she, oh, yeah, she Frank's back. Yeah. Frank's back. The no. homeless man has gone away. Exactly. But the thing with Frank when right that away. beard was, it was from neck up. Pure downtown east side homeless man from neck down was like this ripped athlete who was like a 25 year old. It was hilarious. I bet you most guys in the downtown east side are probably ripped, you know. But well, you looked fit. Yeah. They're just well, they're, they're heroin fit. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's a different fit. <laughs> fentanyl fit. Yeah, that's a different fit. That's just called a Try the three day fentanyl program. Yeah, yeah. you were yeah. ripped. Like you were just strong. Like it was like, oh my God, you're, yeah, yeah, obviously those trips are doing their business. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but you also looked like a homeless man. Yeah, well, it's a uh, it's a curated <laughs> look. Yeah, and uh, so Kevin, as far as you were talking about your adventures, uh, what is your most memorable adventure? I guess, or most impactful adventure, perhaps. It doesn't have to be like the one. I, you're obviously known for, and it may be your the record setting trip to the South Pole. You and and uh, uh, Richard Weber uh, raised the Abner yourself did. 33 days? 33 days, yeah. Like, uh, unsupported to the yep. South Pole. Yeah, yeah. And that was a record, Guinness Book of World Record. Yeah. Uh, back in 2013? 2009. 2009, sorry. So, that long ago. Long time ago. Yeah. And then, uh, but is that the most memorable of all your trips, or is there something that's more that kind of... No, actually, the Mackenzie yeah. River. My oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Truthfully, like, I've had some really memorable trips uh, with yourself, of course. Uh, epic Bikes on Ice, which was... I mean, all of them have their unique memories and aspects but in terms of some meaningful for me personally as a dad was the Mackenzie River just seeing my daughters as I said but everything has something special right like um, just yeah I always remember my first expedition uh, skiing I call it an expedition it was technically a race but no one had ever done it before so it really became an expedition was skiing the Iditarod Trail uh, and that was no one thought we could do it and uh, that too took 33 days interestingly the same number as the South Pole and it was just epic hard and I remember really getting to dark places out there boy really hard 
and getting and doing it and just surprising myself going wow it was transformation and how long was that and where was it from where to where uh, that was from knick lake uh, though it's uh, we would think to pronounce it nick lake uh, k-n-i-k i remember everyone laughing at me oh, when i said nick lake and i said how would i know that it's like, ridiculous <laughs> but knick lake uh, alaska all the way to uh, Nome, alaska mm. uh, 1860k and uh epic i mean it's edited rod right it's middle of winter and it's through the barrens of alaska and we had no place being out there. I didn't know what I was doing and somehow pulled it off. What was the the, the darker moment? The darkest Well, I had got a really bad chest infection where I was coughing up blood for a number of days, huge chunks of blood. And I was thinking, well, I probably should quit. And I know if I go to a doctor in the local village, they're going to tell me quit. And then I thought, but I don't want to quit. So I'm not going to go to a doctor. Screw it. Hopefully it gets better. And I'm, I don't, the pneumonia doesn't get too bad, which amazingly it didn't. And I came through it. But um, it was things like that where really being pushed harder than I ever had pushed myself before. Really cold, mm-hmm. really out there and not knowing whether you can actually get to the other end. The next thing you know, you do and you realize, holy crap, I can do this and, and this, this self-belief. And that's what, again, the adventure touches on. And like Frank and I have done a number of really cool expeditions over the years and all of them are kind of magical for their own reason, you know, like... Uh, like the Sandakan Death March, which mm-hmm. was incredible, riding through Java in the midst of a jihad, which was interesting. Uh, yeah, in Java we were we were basically oh, that was you. We we discussed that trip. That was that was a fun. I don't I don't know when we yeah we did basically that. we did this trip where we decided to hey let's go do let's go. Um, I think I may have made it coup, out there. And you, you, get, you yeah. Create, yeah. I said, let's let's go run all 13, 10,000 foot volcanoes in Java. And we'll bike to them all. We'll start from Jakarta, where our, fr- our mutual friend Paul Dillon was living at the time. He was like a, this combat journalist, kind of a freelance journalist, you know, adrenaline junkie kind of guy. And I'd stayed with Paul the year before on another trip I'd done passing through Jakarta. And so we, we ended up there. And then, of course... Uh, Kevin's birthday is September the 10th, and so we went out for a whole bunch of beers. And then we were super hungover. I remember on September 11th having like courtesy beers with Paul Dillon in, in a in a kind of a, a Jakarta bar. And all of a sudden, he's he's a journalist who's so getting these like reports coming in. And it's like it's like oh, there's a plane or hit a building or something in New York. We thought oh, it's like a little Cessna or something. Yeah. And then the reports come. He said oh, this is serious. So we all scuttle over to his place. All the freelance journalists cluster around the, the TV uh, and then we watch the, the planes going in the, in, into the towers and the towers kind of going down. And, and I remember there's a moment there where Paul is just kind of like, uh, he just kind of casually comes out, brings a handful of glasses, like places them on the table, clink, clink, places a bottle of whiskey beside them. And all the journalists proceed to look and they're all saying, and they, they don't really care that so much that the buildings are going down, that everything's burning and the world's going to hell. It's more like, looks like we got to go to Afghanistan now. So it's kind of like they had these great gig doing East Timor and a whole bunch of the small skirmishes and stuff in Indonesia. And now they got to go to the Middle East. Yeah, now, they knew their, it. their concern was it's just like a job shift. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next day, Kevin and I said, all right, let's, let's bike across Java and uh, climb these 10,000 foot volcanoes in the, in the, in a Muslim country of a hundred and or Muslim island of 130 million people which java was at the time which meant nothing to us at the time yeah, like we yeah. had no idea like it was and we were the only people out there and then by the time we got to east java which is a bit more militant and then the u.s at the same time was gathering their forces around afghanistan about to go in and then you know we were getting spat at and cursed at and everyone saying you know 
you know, fuck you, Americans, and all this sort of thing. And people were Canada, pointing eh? guns at us. And we were saying, we're from Canada. They were, America. They didn't, they didn't care. You're white. Yeah. And it was so, the weirdest thing. It's yeah. the first time I felt. Uh, and so it's that was all- like a, an adventure that got a, a kind of sideswiped by politics a little bit. Yeah. So we kind of scuttled off to a buddy of mine to start up this first ever kind of ecotourism business in Laos. It just had opened up. And we, we went up there and did this awesome trip with him. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, Shea up in... Uh, in northern Laos to kind of get away from the heat, but uh, and there was yeah. nothing. You go there, yeah. and in another country, it's Buddhist. Yeah, maybe. but Kevin has some great sketches of that somewhere here. Oh, yeah. There's nothing down here, there. but yeah, yeah there's yeah, some good yeah. sketches of uh, that whole yeah. incident. The one so, thing about Kevin as well, as far as his like a lot of, I think architecture these days, people are completely computer dependent. But Ke- but Kevin yeah. at the time, even even in uh, did drafting and you drew. Well, just sketch. freehand sketching so he could do a rendering or an idea yeah. really quickly on a big pad of paper and just give people a visual of what it, what it is or what it was and especially in the day when people <laughs> couldn't express themselves that quickly they didn't have the the the, the, the very sophisticated you know uh, architectural computer cr- programs yeah. where you can quickly sketch up something now but you could do it very very quickly and instantaneously and, and capture in a moment in a, in a feeling or an essence or like a, a design which you couldn't anymore. And I think, I think you told me you used to bring your sketchbook into interviews back in the yep. day, yep. architecturally. Yeah. And even a lot of that was just from, I mean, you, you touched on it before. You said you went to McGill to Cambridge, but then you left Cambridge and you went on this, like, I believe it was a, like a 4,000 kilometer bike tour through Europe and sketched all these amazing architectural buildings. And that became your interview portfolio. Yep. And, Interestingly, and, and, yeah. and how did that how did that happen? So basically, you go to Cambridge, and and what in God's name would make you leave Cambridge? Well, this uh, prestigious institution where you get a scholarship to. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. got into Cambridge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I had a Commonwealth scholarship, and they the problem is they actually uh, the Commonwealth Scholarship Committee uh, places you, and they said, well, what place in Cambridge University would you like to go? And I said, yeah, be awesome. Cambridge sounds great. And went, and then you have to get in, and so I have to get accepted. And in, in turn, I remember coming with my portfolio and my sketchbook, which I had drawn through Europe. And they were more interested in my sketchbook. I remember that's what got me in, was looking at my sketches and saying, trying to get into your mind rather than just the more formal architectural stuff. It was just the more way you're free thinking. So you had, you had actually done a bike tour before Cambridge? Yeah, yeah, okay. before Cambridge, yeah. And uh, then I got in, and uh, after about two and a half months in Cambridge, I was in... The way it works in those uh, with Cambridge or Oxford is that you get accepted in a the school of architecture or school of engineering, but you also have to get accepted in a college. So if you don't get accepted into a college, King's College, that's where all the you know, upper crust go. Uh, I if you don't get accepted in college, you don't go to the you can't go. So you get your you have your interview with the college. So I I was part of Churchill College, which I think Americans a little bit, and it's just a little bit different Americans as in North Americans uh, go there. But there was a lot of Brits where I was staying. It was an interesting group. But uh, I remember my advisor, I have a special advisor at Churchill College. He took me aside and said, do you realize the degree you're getting here is identical to the degree you have at McGill? Like the exact same. And I, I said, no, no, I'm here on a postgraduate work. They go, no, but they don't recognize that you're going to get the same degree. And I did some digging thanks to this guy and realized, no, I'm getting the same degree. And I went to them. It's like a lateral move. Yeah, yeah, I said, like, what? I'm going to spend two years here and get the same degree? Yeah, yeah, but it's Cambridge. And I thought, 
well, we'll be seeing you. That's great. Bye now. And I left and I quit. I said, I'm not doing this. This is stupid. Just, I'm going to spend two years of my life to get Cambridge at the end of my name. Yeah, right. Whatever. Uh, so Commonwealth Scholarship Committee was all apologetic and, and basically lined me up with another university. And at the time, I was like, ah, enough of that already. I'm moving on. So that's when I moved out here. Did, did you do another bike trip after that, though, too? Little book oh, Nikki, end, bookend. Yeah. Nikki and I did. Yeah. We did a massive bike trip through Europe as That's well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, a number of major bike trips over the days. Yeah, yeah. that was a really long one. Uh, after that, but uh, yeah, uh, no. Uh, sometimes, honestly, to be uh, again, help speak NDG boy growing up inner city Montreal. That name stuff doesn't matter that much. It was really nice to get a, a potential degree from Cambridge University, but frankly, no one gives a hoot. And I got a degree from McGill. McGill is a great university. Whatever. I don't care. Like, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And and um, then how did you... you so you pivoted from that. You went to, started climbing. And you did, uh, obviously, some adventures. And then uh, then how did, how did you become, you know, in terms of uh, put everything together as far as, like, the balancing act? So suddenly you have kids... You're doing adventures, you're doing uh, architecture, and in terms of like that kind of balancing your life, and, and also always because even even I noticed like throughout a lot of people when they have kids they'll like disappear into just parenting, but throughout the, throughout the whole time you had your kids you still went off and did adventures. I did, and you kind of balanced it out. Right? Yeah. I mean, so you never kind of just dropped everything, and you never focused it. You kind of no, you have yeah. to. You have to, yes. So that I mean, whole balancing compromise. you talked about in, in McGill, you you kept on that's, going through with it the whole way through. That's inspiring, and yeah. I have yeah. I have all my friends in the last five or ten years, most of them were a little later adopters, um, had kids. So uh, all my a lot of my friends and family have kids now. And there are contingents that are work, go home, take a kid, care of a kid that you know, I don't see as much or at all. Um, and it's just drudgery. And then there's others, such as um, Rory would be a good example, um, who's a phenomenal athlete, outdoor adventurer. And him and his wife are both really, you know, driven to be outside. And uh, they always make it work. And like you and Nikki as well. They're juggling. Yeah. You know, it's like, then uh, they do it and it's totally possible. And there's really no other way if you're you're driven to do this unless you're going to just, you know, there's a bit of detritus there. It's priority, right? Just so it's that. inspiring for me and I need to, you know, remember to be creative and juggle and push myself and, and well, you have to push yeah. because it's not easy and, the and you drag screaming. your kids along you just do yeah. well <laughs> our yeah. first one with caitlin uh, before ariana was born katie was nine oh, yeah, months that's old right. we took her to siberia for mm-hmm. oh my god and we took her to lake baikal in siberia for a kayak expedition which turned completely sideways because the stupid travel agents that gave us um our visas, which we got the day we left, that was just this complete cluster. Yeah, actually, so just as far as like details, so describe that you're in Siberia with your nine-month-old, nine-month-old daughter, and and um and you're going happily along. You have your visa. You're heading out to Lake Baikal, and and when do you discover that you don't have the right visa? Well, it's a thirty-day journey. Yeah, and we've been issued. Our visas as part of our passports here in Vancouver in this crazy rush because the travel agents were so incompetent. We got our passports the day we were leaving back from the Russian embassy. And it's all in Cyrillic in Russian, so I can't read it. On the airplane, we go <laughs> fly to Moscow. Moscow, hop on a uh, train, take the Trans-Siberian Railroad all the way across Russia to Siberia, uh, which is awesome. And our visas, unbeknownst to us, 
expired on that train journey halfway across Russia. Got to the other side, then a two-day Jeep journey down to the shores of Lake Baikal. Remote, 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 remote. And the guy we were staying with, uh, he was the ranger there on the lake. He said, I must take your passports to get them certified at the police office, as they do. And he came back within a few minutes and said, yeah, sit down, you're in, immense, you're in really big trouble. And it ends up that uh, our visas had expired week before. And I said, can't we just renew them? And he said, no, 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 not in Russia. In Russia, uh, you are now illegally here and you're going to be deported and arrested and your daughter may be uh, separated from you and you're going to go to prison and it's going to cost, I can't remember, I think it was 25,000 US 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 dollars uh, to get out. By the sweet beard of Zeus. (laughs) It's like, what do we do for Lord's sake, really? And... uh, Oh, I talked to Canadian embassy and they said, you're screwed. And I talked to them. <laughs> Moscow, they were no Thanks, help. Canada. And I uh, talked to uh, a Moscow uh, uh, travel agent. She said, whatever you do, do not turn yourself in. You must bribe your way out of Russia. Yeah. So we had to bribe <laughs> our advice. way out. And we, over the course of multiple weeks and meeting various people, we bribed our way out and got mm-hmm. past uh, these special visas to get out. That's a long story unto itself, but with my nine-month-old daughter in my arms the whole time. And the thing was, though, the fact that I was a dad with a nine-month-old baby in my arms went a long way to helping, having people help us out because we were not a threat. We were not crazy people. We were just a young family out doing something that something horribly went wrong. And Katie didn't know the difference. She was just bubbling along like a little thing and having a great old time. Weren't you in like a... a Concrete apartment for like a week we, in Irkutsk at one point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they put us up. These Just people kind of trapped in this little like said, whatever mosquito you do, do not box. leave. Do not leave. <laughs> That's intense. Do not. They're leave. hidden. Yeah. Yeah, and they don't. Whatever you do, don't leave. And we wait a week. And at one point, I was just going to leave because and they tell what it. Police see us. They're going to. You were on, on in quarantine. You well, they leave. said until we come, and then the phone leave. rang. Kevin had a rage about him. Yeah, but at the, that point, but the phone rang. I remember and uh, picking it up, and this guy in Russian was like blah, 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 talking to me. I said, "Sorry, I don't speak." Click. And then call it like two seconds later, same guy, much more agitated. Sorry, click. Third time, he's losing his shit. Click. And then about an hour later, don't, 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 knock on the door. And it's the people that dropped us there. We must go. We must go somewhere else. And it ends up, this is in the before time, before uh, cell phones and everything, when you'd call home to get your answering machine. <laughs> this he dude kept, didn't realize we had put, he, these people had put us up in his apartment. He was away and they, he didn't know. So imagine calling your home, oh. picking up your messages and some so English, some like Russian guy picks up. Hey, what's going on, bro? Yeah, it's like, you're in, my, in Russian going, you're in my house. Why are you in my house? Can you imagine? <laughs> oh my yeah. god but anyway in the end um two criminals yeah it worked out but mm-hmm. uh again we took our baby and uh where did you exit the the country like how, so you paid your way somewhere we flew out it was an extra visa that you actually we never knew i think you paid a thousand dollar bribe yeah thousand dollar bribe to get yeah. a fake visa instead yeah. of yeah. twenty five thousand dollars yeah bonus yeah uh, but considering that a uh, a doctor makes uh twelve hundred dollars a year in Irkutsk, it was pretty good money for whoever got bribed. <laughs> yeah. So in the end, it was all good. But uh, did you uh, ever put that up on YouTube? Blessed by call. I don't think I did. Get it. Look at it. Look for kids. Blessed by call. YouTube. Yeah. Starring Cabin Valley. Yeah. yeah. I look a lot younger in that. Yeah. <laughs> I look at these things and back. Oh my god. That's right. I remember. Well, Kevin and I, we did this thing called Bikes and Ice, where we followed the. Uh, we had the two journals of these 
gold miners who had done this. In 1901, they basically had gone from Dawson to Nome by bike uh, in order to hit the gold rush in Nome because the Dawson one had died out. Gold strike in Nome. 10,000 people went across. These guys went by bike. We did the tour. Middle of winter in 1900. Yeah. And so amazing thing. Actually, the first film I ever shot was, was Bikes and Ice. And at the time, I remember Kevin, he looked like, you know, like a, like a, a young Richard Simmons, like this big... You know, uh, orange hair. You know, youthful. I, I, almost like a big. It's quite like he looks looks very like lean right now. He'd kind of like a big kind of moon face at the time. <laughs> That's because of our trip. And we ate like, so much pizza yeah. and everything. At the end of it, I gained like twenty pounds. Yeah, exactly. God. We had a slower member of the trip there, Andy. Good, good fella. He just he just he just wasn't the biker we thought he'd be. He was the walker. He, he was the he was the hop 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 fall push push mm. push hop 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 fall. Determined to bike, but. It just didn't As happen for him. He was hopping, we were eating. So Yeah, we were eating. <laughs> yeah. He was eating, actually. That's... <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, so that was, that was, um, that was Kevin in, in his youth. So if you can pick up... Bikes on Ice actually is. I put it on yeah. on the Frank Wolf YouTube channel. You can see Kevin at his youthful best. Yeah, you can see how, how I've aged there. in yeah. the last 20 years. Yeah. So, so your content lives on a YouTube page as well as... Uh, Kevin has uh, his own personal website. He's got his business website for architecture. And then Frank, um, obviously YouTube plus website. So the easiest way to access probably just Google it or go to YouTube. Yeah, you can you can find um, to find some cool like vintage you know reality adventure. Mm-hmm. All I can say is Canadian snow leopard. Just put that out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mammalian. Look it up. Just mammalian. That'll probably bring it up. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Just put mammalian snow leopard. Just put Frank Wolf <laughs> leopard. <get> it. <laughs> It'll come up. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. Yes. But, Infamous. But, um, oh yeah. So what, <laughs> one more thing I want to circle back to is what you were talking about your dad before. Yep. And, and there's one story you told me once about, about you being, I think, 16 or 17 <laughs> in the bar or in a circle of guys with your dad, both of you are in age, and there's a joint being passed around. Oh, yeah. That's and, true. And, and your, your dad's looking at you, and you're looking at your dad, and you're both thinking, okay... I may take a toke sometimes, I may take, but they're thinking, I don't want to show my dad that I smoke. And your dad's saying, I don't want to show my son that I smoke. And there's this moment. So what, ha- so what happened? How did that break? How did that come together? Where the, the meeting of the friends, your dad's friends and your friends in Montreal. Yeah, like, it's interesting. This is like the, the generational crossing that everyone experiences. Yeah, my dad, life. like we grew yeah. up very, very liberal minded, uh, my dad. And he was, he was going to go to Woodstock, but because of us, he didn't go. So to give you a sense. And uh, so number of his friends at the house they'd come over and there's always people over having drinks and not crazy but just yeah. have his buddies over and there'd be marijuana going around and it was like meh i just wouldn't give a think uh, think anything of it and interestingly even when i was young i remember 12 or 13 one of his friends was gay but you got to understand that's 40 odd years ago so that was really edgy stuff and i remember giggling i thought it was really funny and he was just like Get it together already, you know? There's nothing wrong with that. And uh, I, I I remember thinking of that now, like now everyone, it's understood. That's not a big issue. But back then, that was a huge thing. And that was where my family was. So very open-minded. So needless to say, a lot of my dad's friends, all my dad's friends smoked dope. Um, and he would occasionally too, but he was not chronic. No, no. He would just, I guess he did with his buddies. But it was we this one incident where my dad had a, a pub downtown that he'd go to called the Novarex. And it had become 
taken over by young people for whatever reason. And I was part of that group. So it, it was this, it was unfortunate for my poor dad because his bar now was being taken over by these the hipsters of <laughs> punks. Yeah. yeah. And we were not hip, man. Adam, we were not hip. It was just like <laughs> young, obnoxious drinking. Yeah, just not even trying. But the kids hold. rolled in and took over an establishment, which happens a lot. Yeah. And suddenly there was a point when I'd be there with my buds and my dad was there with his buds and we're all together. And it was this one time when there was just this full table and it was my dad's friends and he was right across from me like you and i and I remember ernie bear his name was ernie bear is this crazy dude who just lived in the bar and he just fires up a big big honker and just starts passing it around and i remember just like every one of my friends like oh my god we're smoking up on my <laughs> kevin's dad i can't believe this is so cool and it, i remember it slowly goes around it comes to me and I'm looking at my dad and I just pass it along. <laughs> and then it goes all the way out. Everyone's taking a tone, all my dad's friends. And then it comes to him. He looks at me and he passes it along. <laughs> it goes back to Bear. And we thought, Johnny L. I remember asking him later on, is would you? Yeah, I probably should have taken a tone, but I didn't. <laughs> we both felt we're not going to go there. We're not going to go there right now. I didn't inhale. No, yeah. I didn't inhale. <laughs> but it was just such an awkward, strange time. But there you go. <laughs> that's it good times with dad right fond memories right people leave us my dad's left yep. left and your, your dad's left but yep. uh their legacy lives on right in in, in us in a way yeah. yeah yeah and you know it was interesting because my dad uh said to me i remember because you knew a lot about my dad uh and i remember taking him taking me aside and said you know i was really i was really taken by that that uh that he you knew so much about him Oh, could we tell him the stories that night? No, just, there. yeah. He oh, yeah. was really, like he said, you know, thank, like he was really proud about that. Like the fact that um, I was proud of him. It was something really kind of meaningful there. So, yeah. And he gave us Andy Jones as well in Codco. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Andy Jones. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. When I called him, no, that's impossible. Remember that's how he couldn't believe it. Who's Andy Jones? Oh, geez, well, you got to look it up. Andy Jones, I mean, people probably know there's a CBC show, kind of well-known kind of cult comedy show called Codco. And uh, it, it's kind of a precursor to this hour has 22 minutes. So um, uh, Andy Jones was definitely the star. But um, what's his sister's name? Kathy again? Jones. Kathy Jones, who's still on this hour has 22 minutes. Another like comedy kind of. But 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 at the time, Kodka was completely off the wall, inappropriate, no holds bound, eccentric. And it, and his dad would tape the most inappropriate out there kind of you know boundary pushing andy jones skits and then uh, we we would watch this all the time oh yeah it's so great he became a fan and so one time like after watching codco me and kevin are probably the only people who are still watching these codco andy jones skits like just super fans mm-hmm. and we see that andy jones is playing at the fire hall theater down in uh we sell andy jones is playing so me and shannon and kevin and nikki we go to go to the fire hall and then and it's Andy Jones doing a one man show and he's doing all the skits that we know and we're like front row like re- so good. repeating and he's kind of looking at us sometimes for the shows these guys know like everything I'm doing have they seen the show already but we just knew the lines from his his skits and his dad had kind of <laughs> plugged through and then and then after the show I kind of say you know we've had a few and I kind of go I'm going to go ambush Andy Jones so I go down there in the down back hall and then I see you know, actor's entrance, I walk in there and then I, I see, I open it up and there's Andy Jones like washing his face in front of the mirror. It's just Andy Jones. No one else is there. It's just Andy Jones, one man show. So I literally sneak up 
on his shoulder. <laughs> he doesn't know I'm there, and I kind of tap him on the shoulder, and, and he goes, ah, and he turns around, and I go, and I, Andy, I have one question for you. It's kind of inside. Are you a genius? Which is one of his characters, and he goes, oh, oh, you know, uh, Ricardo, you, you know, Ricardo Huerta, and he goes, you want to come for a pint? And so we end up going for a pint with Andy Jones nice. down the street, and we have hanging out with him, and we're 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 like. Uh, and me and Kevin are, are flanking him. We're on either side of Andy Jones, these super fans. And then at one point, Andy Jones talks to you about a movie he did with John Hurt. Yeah. yeah. Would, <laughs> well, I remember when Frank came up and said, we're going drinking with Andy. And I went, no, we're not. No, no, seriously, we're going to go to the Irish Heather with Andy. And sure enough, we were. But he's Andy Jones is telling me the story about when he was working with Andy, with... Uh, with John Hurt. Hurt. Uh, John William Hurt. Hurt. William Hurt. William Hurt, yeah. um, On some movie that I've seen, actually. Rare it's Birds. A, yeah, yeah, big Hollywood film. And he says, he's a funny guy because he's super quiet and he just goes away. But then when he comes on and he's seen in person, like, he's he's amazing. He's just this actor. You know, he's just like a superstar. And he says, it's, we, don't, we don't deal with people like that very often. I mean, none of us really even know the feeling of being around a star. And I remember going, in your mind. I know exactly what it's like right now because <laughs> I'm with you. I mean, he didn't even clue into Andy it. Andy Jones was Kevin's William Hurt. Oh, yes. oh, totally. But it was so nice. It was so down key. And so it was just so cool. And I remember calling my dad. So he'd, he'd never guess who I went out drinking with tonight. And uh, anyway, sure enough, I said, Andy Jones. He says, no, impossible. <laughs> he didn't believe me. And at the end of it, it was no, like, it was no. Like, it almost felt like, you know, it's been completely fulfilled. Like, forget all this architecture stuff yes. and all these other things. You've gone out for finally. My Jones. son is worthy. You finally did something worthwhile <laughs> in your life. I've arrived. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. I felt it. That was super awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shout out to Andy Jones. Check him out. Find him. Yeah, oh, just cool. Ricardo Canadian legend. Huerta. Yeah. Huerta. That's H U E R T. It sounds like weirdo. That means Huerta. Exactly. <laughs> so, Kevin, where can people? find you if they want to check out your stuff they want to check out your expeditions maybe architectural work maybe follow you on instagram what, what, what's your well uh, uh fortunately valley v-a-l-l-e-l-y like valley but there's an l thrown in at the end beside the y uh you throw in kevin valley uh i'm the only one there's Perfect. really i think there's one in, in yeah Ireland. I've, I've, I, it was it was phenomenally easy so if you just if you google kevin valley you'll find his work and it's awesome because there's there's these three components that that I've kept kind of reciting is there's your your consultancy you know doing team building and communication which is pretty awesome um, and then there's your, your your core kind of career I believe would would be architecture of course and then the the latter and, and like the the most ex- exciting thing and the thing that kind of keeps you who you are is adventure which kind of yeah. is brought, what brought us to this this and table kevinvalley.com like the, uh, yeah, the, the Kevin, everything or site. yeah or valley.ca for the architecture, architecture right yeah. and but also it, so right now like in terms of uh, an instagram is what what's, uh, what's just instagram? my name yeah kevin valley kevin valley yeah, yeah. and are you going to like throw out some like pre-trip prep stuff uh, for your and Ray's Ellesmere trip coming up totally in February right so it's in coming February, up in February uh, yeah. Yeah. it's coming up hence the dragging of the tire I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm roller skiing down the demonstration forest road every day virtually every day I did it today for two hours just hauling so what is roller tire. skiing if someone doesn't know uh, it's like cross country skiing but it's a dry land cross country skiing and you have these these kind of roller things on your feet kind of kind of like roller blades but like a mini ski that uh, mimic classic skiing which is you know there's two types skating or classic classicing is the typical shuffle 
and that's what we'll be doing. But then you add in the tire. Yes, and I'm hauling a big old tire behind yeah. me. And why? That, why you're hauling a tire? Why? Because and, and how, how much does the tire weigh? A tire probably, I have two tires. One's about 70 pounds. One's about 30 pounds, uh, depending on how I feel and how hard I want to push. But it's it's actually, it's it's not really the weight. It's just, it's so sticky, right? It's so much friction behind you. It's mimicking pulling a sled mm-hmm. because uh, when you're, when you're man hauling a big sled in the Arctic, uh, it weighs 200 to 250 pounds and it's a pig behind you and you got to get your body ready for it. So I want to be ready. And that's one of these things as I get older. And this is where we're getting a little bit smarter on my trips is that I I physically can't fake it as much. I don't want to get hurt. And Mm -hmm. I want to be really physically ready because it's going to be cold minus 40. It's going to be polar night. You know, in the beginning, it's going to be dark, essentially 20 four hours a day uh it's just gonna be pitch black all the time and hopefully not a lot of dangerous wildlife but there is polar bears roaming around in the dark wanting to how long you. will it take you approximately guessing 40 50 days mm-hmm. fully unsupported so you know long time really cold minus 40 to minus 60 i'd say like realistically uh, as average temperatures yeah so it's gonna be cold sounds like a good time it won't be but it, you know <laughs> imagine though and you you get yeah. it because you'll love it. Uh, you would love this. Is that you're going through a place where no one's ever done this before and traveling through a section where no one's really ever been with just the aurora exploding over your head. We've had that actually out in uh, Bikes and Ice there, yep. you know? Yep. And you're just traveling by dark and the aurora is going off. And sure, it's freezing cold, but you're the only one there. There's something magic about it. So, yes, you can't do it for long. And yes, it takes a toll. But, uh, I kind of live for those moments, you know? Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Kevin, for chatting. Yeah. Adam, anything else? Yeah, no, I mean, just thank you so much for, for your time, uh, that gift of time, and, and hosting us here in your house is really special. So best of, of luck on your next adventure. I look forward to hearing about it. Um, and, and last but not least, of course, um, you've written at least two books, which are published, Wild Success and Rowing the Northwest Passage. So there's another great thing to pick up if you've enjoyed yep. the conversation Check out Kevin's today books are he's awesome. got a voice but he's also got a pen so i look forward to reading one of those so thank you very very much and awesome. um idea adios kevin thanks man appreciate it